Damn, we're live. <laughs> Wait, why? Huh? Oh, you. Yes. Tamer Katan. Tamer. Hey, how are you, man? Good. Sevon, did I pronounce your name right? Uh, it's Tamer like a hammer. Tamer. 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 Pretend there's, uh, Tamer. Yeah, pretend there's, uh, it's easier if you think of it with two M's. Tam- you, you gave me a perfect way to pronunciate it, <laughs> and, uh, and I still pronunciated it wrong. <laughs> like it Savon? I can't even say pronunciate. Uh Sevon, yeah, you pronounce it Sevon. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. I had a Persian friend named Kavon. So that's oh, K-E-V-A-N? Yeah, it was really similar. Uh, uh Sevon's a lake in Armenia. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm living your I'm living your your parents' life. I got a uh I, I married a Ashkenazi Jew and I'm oh, an wow. Armenian, and we have uh Three uh, little Jumanian boys. <laughs> That's great, man. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I'm pumped. Two five-year-olds and a seven-year-old. My wife got him 23 and me, one of them, uh, using a fake name just in case I have an uncle who's a killer. You don't want to out him. <laughs> and because uh, you know how that works, right? You heard about that? No. Yeah. Like if I try, if, if you, let's say you were to go 23 and me yourself, well, yeah. your DNA is so close to so many other people that they can kind of like triangulate on other people and be like, oh shit, Tamar's second cousin, uh, we were, we've been looking for him for a, a murder case. But, oh, okay. Yeah. But you can't, but you can't 23 and me and me yourself with a fake name. And, uh, and we did that. And he, the kid's 51% Ashkenazi. Those are like the super inbred Jews. <laughs> and um and and uh and 49 armenian which i think we're pretty we're pretty solidly inbred too wow that's almost 50 50 man that's crazy i know i thought it would have been 50 50 i mean i i didn't pay close attention in that class i think it was like anthropology where they talked about yeah how people were made <laughs> yeah maybe. Think, like they did the chromosome talk and anthropology 101 but i didn't pay attention I was looking yeah, at girls. That's wild. No, but you you don't often see it so uh so cleanly split. It's like one of those cats that has a different fur right down the middle of its face. That's that's crazy. Right. Um can I, where are you? Uh right now I'm in Lisbon. I just got here yesterday from Berlin. And Lisbon is Portugal. Lisbon and Portugal, exactly. It's the most western point of Europe, so it's the closest to the states. Oh, no shit. I was I was yeah. going to say something stupid too. And it's just north of is Portugal's pretty close to Africa too, right? Just north. Yeah, it's not far. Exactly. Like it's it's just on the other side of Spain. Like if you look at the Spanish Peninsula, the edge of it, it's a California-shaped country on on the Atlantic. And so, yeah, this from the southern Portugal, it's very um, African-like temper, uh, temperature, and you could see you could see Morocco. Oh, you literally can when you're at the coast. Yeah, if you have great eyeballs. Yeah, if you, you know, like from Portugal. Yeah, there you go. So from there, yeah, you can see Africa. Why are you there? Oh, uh, so I got, there? yeah, exactly. I got married during the pandemic and fell in love. And we, I, she was, she's a Swedish girl living in Barcelona. And then um, we wanted to start a life together. We were both in a new country. And um, Portugal had a really good golden visa program. Because the other thing is I wanted to get my mom over here. And so that's uh, for several reasons we decided on Portugal. And did your mom come? Yeah. She lives like 30 minutes away by train in a a place called Carcavelos. It's a little beach town that's very similar to like Newport Beach. And where we live is, I mean, it's very similar to California. 
Uh, very interesting that you use Newport Beach as the example. What a remarkable, <laughs> what a remarkable place. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's a, uh, yeah, it reminds me a lot of Newport Beach. Actually, if you squint, you feel like you're in Newport Beach. If you hate rich people and you want <laughs> it to go away, you want that hate to go away, visit Newport Beach. What a wonderful place with some really, really fucking rich people. And there's like totally. no chewing gum on the ground and you don't have to worry about <laughs> being robbed. And uh, they use the right amount of alcohol in the drinks. I mean, what a what a fantastic kind of like paradise in, in what otherwise is a, a California that has some uh, – some, growing pains going through some growing pains. yeah it's a really interesting place i spent some pretty formative years there and it was really interesting we lived in a, on a street called 49th and neptune uh -huh. and where we lived a lot of the houses were owned by big surf companies and so they'd let pro surfers pop in and out and so, literally the the part of newport beach we lived in they called it the projects uh very tongue-in-cheek because it was they were the only homes where like multiple roommates were living there but we were living on beachfront property. I, I lived across the street from Dennis Rodman uh, when he was at his peak. It was very bizarre. How, how old are you? Uh, 51. Okay, so we're the same age. Holy shit. Okay, yeah. it's so interesting. I watched the interview last night that you did on uh, They Tried to Bury Us podcast. Oh, yeah. And I watched, I watched episode one with your mom. Wow. And your mom looks so young. Yeah, and, she does. And she said she was born in 1947. I'm like, holy shit, this dude might be the same age as me. You look young too. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm a happy person now. Yeah, That's black don't I, crack. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Egyptian. That's close enough. Yeah, Same well, area. It's like if uh, black was uh, Mexico, Egypt would be San Diego. Like we're, <laughs> we're right on the border. And, and you're born in Egypt. Yeah, born in Cairo. Um, do, you know, do you know of Patrick Bet David? No, I don't think so. But you know what? I'm, I'm a better recognizer by face than by name. Let, uh, let, let me see if I can bring him up here. He is a, um, uh, an uh, Egyptian-Armenian um, entrepreneur in, uh, in the United States. He has the largest uh, YouTube station, um, which is kind of a weird way to brag about him because he's done so much else. This is him right here. Do you recognize him? Um, no. He wrote this book, Your Next Five Moves. He owns an insurance company. He has like 20,000 employees. Wow. Yeah, he is uh, – I, I had him on the show, half Armenian, uh, half Egyptian. Um, and uh, he's, he's uh, got some uh, harrowing tale of escaping uh, Egypt during, uh, during the, the tussle. Oh, wow, during the revolution. I was there during the revolution. I had a wild experience there too. It was pretty wild. Yeah, he he's a uh, he's a young man though. He's only forty three. Yeah, it's a uh, the graffiti during the revolution when I was there. I I was there performing comedy at the American University in Cairo for the protesters for the younger generation, and the graffiti man. Oh my god, it was just tear jerking. Um, what what year was that that you were there? Uh, well, I have it tattooed on my arm actually. Two thousand eleven, the eleventh okay. of the eleventh day of February, two thousand eleven. <laughs> You know what? I'm such. Uh, uh, I'm wrong. I, 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 uh, he, I, I lied to you. <laughs> okay. He's he's not he's not Egyptian. He's half Iranian. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I get all my you, all my Middle Eastern dudes all scrambled <laughs> up. Hey, man, I get it. We're like Mexican food. You know, we're like the ingredients on the inside are similar, but the the shell's different. 
those are Mexicans crossing the border. No, they're Venezuelans. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I apologize. Uh, t- tell, tell me, can you tell me about your heroin experience in Egypt? Sure. I had, uh, at the time, I think I'd been doing comedy in two thousand for about 10 years, maybe. No, no, less than that. 2011. Uh, yeah, maybe like seven or eight years at that point. And I heard, you know, the Arab spring was the big topic being covered and they were like showing you the Arab spring through all these different lenses of life. And one of the lenses they took us through was these um, Egyptian kids that made a comedy production company that would have comedy shows every Friday. And then they have a comedy school every Saturday where people would use comedy to vent like the anxiety and the stress and the frustration. And I was just so impressed by them. So I thought, Hey, maybe these guys have a Facebook page or something. Cause this was like a, a CNN article. And so Man, I, I was an in-betweener, probably very similar to the Iranian cat you're referencing, an in-betweener in the sense that I wasn't accepted by America as quickly as I was rejected by Egypt. Okay. So I felt like I was kind of floating in space. And, and so, why the rejection, Tamar? You know, I think a lot of times when you immigrate from one country to another country, you, you use these different um, social institutions to connect with people a lot, or religious uh-huh. And because my parents were conflicting religions, we didn't really go to mosque. We didn't really go to temple. So it's not like we had this pop-up turnkey group of people that were automatic friends when we immigrated to a new country. So we And you didn't want to kill gays. That and that put yeah, you on, on the yeah, outside. That put you way on the outside. We were very progressive. You know, yeah. I came from a very progressive family. And and I think um you know, uh, religious people, you know, and people, especially Egyptians that moved to America, the Christian Egyptians were very insular because they felt like they were refugees in a right, way right. from the way they were treated by Muslims. And then the Muslims themselves felt like they had so much racism towards them in America. So right. the behavior or the treatment towards them had reversed. Right. And so both of them were very elitist in a way to who was let in and who was let out. So I was kind of this kid floating in the middle. And I always said, I, I don't know if I'm a Muslim or a Jew or an American, but the one thing I know I am is funny. Yeah. And when I saw a group of these kids being so brave and, and pushing for improvement in this country that I still felt love for, and I saw them identifying as comedians, I was like, well, I'm that. I am undeniably that. And so it was a sense of identity and it drew me towards those guys. And so I, I sent them a message on their Facebook fan page and I said, Hey man, I'm really proud of you guys. And I think what you're doing is really brave and, and, and very cool. And, you know, I just want you to know as a, as a fellow Egyptian, I'm proud of you. And the response back was a little unusual. They're like, Hey man, well, we looked you up and you're a great comedian and let's see if, or you're a real comedian. Let's see if you're a real Egyptian and why don't you come out here? We'll fly you come perform with us during the revolution. And wow. uh, so, yeah, man. So it was crazy. Uh, my, I didn't tell my, my mom because I didn't want her to be freaked out. My dad had just passed away and, and I, I'm an only child. So I went to Egypt first and then I let her know. I said, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm in Egypt now and don't be scared. Why would she freak out for safe safety? Yeah. Yeah. For and, sure. And did you have some hairball experiences while you were there? I'll tell you one of the most, the, the most crazy experiences I had that was also brain splitting mm-hmm. was that I was the last comic on stage. So I was the, the most foreign, all the other comics were Egyptian. And then it was, here comes the Egyptian American, right. which 
which Egyptians always make a point of going, you're not a real Egyptian anymore. You're this other thing. And so when I was you're last, doing them in English or Arabic, the, the stand in, in English, okay. in English. And I'd throw in an Arabic word here and there to be cute, you know? Sure. Um, but at, towards the end of my set, I heard people fighting in the back of the stage. And I was like, whoa, something's going on. And so I ended my, the end of the show. I got in a pause break, but I could still hear the fighting. So I went and the kids were younger than me and smaller than me. So I felt like a big brother. And so I ran back there. And this man was just screaming at them saying, what you're doing is wrong. It's haram and all this stuff. And I, and I go, hey, man, I go back up. And I stepped in between him and the kids. And he looked at me and he goes, Tamar, Habibi, it's so good to see you. And I looked at him and I go, what? And he pulled out a picture that he had of me as a child. And he said, I was friends with your father. I came here to see you. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Why are you screaming at them? He's all because what they're doing is wrong. I go, then well, I, I'm, a, I'm part of the show too. This is my job. Why, why aren't you yelling at me? He's like, because they know better. You're uh, not Egyptian. And it was such a bizarre experience to have this guy that I recognized from my childhood, but who was also the worst kind of person at a comedy show and yelling at these, at these young kids who were just trying to live and trying to be heard. Um, I, I want to get back to, uh, who find out a little bit more about this gentleman. But for those of you who don't know, and this is a common term that I grew up with also, even being Armenian and we spoke Armenian, uh, all, almost all my family also speaks Arabic. Um, Habibi is an Arabic word that literally literally oh, yeah. means my love. For those of you who don't know Arabic culture or Middle Eastern culture, it is crazy affectionate. Like, and, and I'm crazy affectionate with my boys. There was always an uncle holding me. I was always on someone's shoulder. Someone was always pulling my cheeks. Someone was always telling me my love. Habibi, Habibi. It was always my love. Everyone was loving everyone. And it's interesting. The words dictate our our world and our reality. I don't think most people realize it. It, it. We are living in a truly magical world where people are, I mean, half our, um, half the, half the world is asleep, probably more because they've been lulled to sleep by words, by word fuckery. And they're being tricked into, into anytime you're offended. I hate to say it. You've been fucked by word fuckery. <laughs> no matter who you are, you're responsible for that. You, you made up, you, you bought into some sort of illusion, which is okay, but you should know it. And this, but imagine a society that the United States and, um, you know, during these times of crisis and, and you know, I, you know, I was stopped at, at the border many a times coming into the United States asking what my role was in the Syrian army. And I understand I, I, I'm hating, but um, my love, these people, these people are lovers, yeah. They love so fucking hard Middle Eastern people. Would you say that's a fair characterization? hundred percent. hundred percent. There's a, there's a, a crap ton of love and it tends to be that way in most countries when uh, you don't have a chance to achieve the American dream and you can't be so individualistic because it's going to get you nowhere. Right. You know what I mean? So then you, your focus shifts to family. And I think there's, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, there's a tremendous amount of love and you can see it in the words and the language. It's an ancient, a lot of languages are ancient language and you can see the amount of affection and love and importance of family in, in the language in a lot of the older, older languages. Uh, I think you have some oatmeal in your mustache. You're kidding. It's gone. It's, it's, gone. it's water. <laughs> oh. I wanted to say booger, but I'm like, you know what? He's a guest claim. It's uh, oatmeal. Boogers are crazy. I like that word, man. I haven't heard booger Bo in a long time. Booger. <laughs> uh, and Tamar, who 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 did that guy end up being? Who was he? 
he was a good friend of my dad's. He was a wow. guy that like uh, was friends with my dad. And, it, you know, it's a very strange thing when you leave a place like Egypt, especially back then, because there is no there was no FaceTime. Um, there was no, you know, social media. Facebook, there, Facebook, you mean? Fa- yeah, the Facebook or FaceTime or anything right. where you could communicate and see each other, you know, Skype, any of that stuff. So you you become ghosts. And the memory uh, that they have of you sometimes is like saintly, you know, or they, or they, them imagining you in America, it's such a distorted vision um, from, from what life is really like. So it was a very strange thing to watch this guy be simultaneously angry at a show that I was a part of and also at, at boys uh, at, at the boys that I was on the show with. And then also so excited to see me and his face full of love. His face was split with love and hate in in this one environment. It was very bizarre because there were some jokes that were sacrilege in in in, in the context that he he lived the world. Yeah, well, he wanted everything was sacrilege because I did ask him. I go, tell me. I go, my I didn't fly all the way across the world to come here to offend you. Right. I'm a, my, my, I'm a, you know me since I was a baby, and I, I've always loved making people laugh. And I go, so tell me what what did I talk about that offended you? And he goes, okay, I'm glad you asked culture. Mm. And I'm like, what? That's everything, man. That's everything. You can't say that. You can't, you're not going to censor me and you're not going to silence me. And so, yeah, that was a, it was a bizarre, it was a very bizarre experience. And it was almost like, it was almost like trying to get back together with a girl that you'd broken up with going out on a date and then realizing, no, it was the right decision. Uh, I would. I want to show you guys something. This uh, is about. I'm only going to show you guys uh, a minute of this. This is at the Top Secret Comedy Club. This is from 2019. This is 12 minutes of time that you will be very happy you spend if you go <laughs> find this. Uh, before I hit play on here, um, how how many years of material? If you can, I don't know if you remember. You have so much content on YouTube. Do you remember this moment? And 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 can I ask you a couple questions about the content? Sure. I absolutely remember the moment and yeah, whatever you want, go for it. How long? Um, yeah, Corey, exactly. I know. Uh, just watched a clip of Tamer stand up, dude. It's funny. You know, it's funny when we've had, uh, I don't know, Thank 20 you. comics on the show and he's like only one of two that actually knows how to talk, which is kind of a trip. <laughs> oh, that's sad. <laughs> I, it, it is sad. It is sad. Uh, how many, how many years of material, how long did it take to refine this, this 12 minutes? Uh, yeah, I'd say 10 years. Yeah. yeah. This is incredible right here. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. Is, is any part of you like, what the fuck has, have you like, you, like you want to like, uh, has anyone not seen this? How come I'm not, you know, it's a funny, how, how does this not have 10 million views? Where the fuck <laughs> is my Netflix special? I mean, Thank this you, is, nu- this is a nuts that. 12 minutes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, I've been, I've been very fortunate in the sense that I started comedy at 40. And so because I started comedy at 40, the industry ignored me. And, and you know what? No. And I had no issues with it because quite honestly, I didn't get into comedy to make money. I didn't get to comedy because I wanted to be a star or a celebrity or anything like that. I got into comedy because it's the only thing that made me act like a sane person. It's, it's the only thing. Sane? Sane. S-A-N-E. Okay. S-A-N-E. Correct. It, it makes me happy. I do it for me. Um, it's teaching me how to be a better man and a better husband. It's if you do it with in off the same branch that I've been inspired to do it through, it's very, um, self exploratory. 
Um, there's a quote that I have above my desk and it changed my world in terms of how I write comedy. And it was from Terry Crews. And he said, um, my life changed when I stopped trying to be the best and started trying to be the only. Mm. And, mm. and that changed my focus from being competitive or being jealous or worrying about what other people were getting or what I wasn't getting and more into what do I have in my life story that nobody else has. And oh, okay. I was going to ask you, what does that mean? The only, but okay. I see what you're saying. It just made me, it, it's so much more self-examining and my comedy makes me nervous. Now my comedy, I, I post videos now and I'm a little bit scared and I wasn't like that when I was just putting up comedy to be funny. And I think it took me a long time to get to that place, not necessarily as a comedian, but as a human being. Psychologically and, stripping. You're yeah, stripping. 100 hundred percent. And then I think now that I've, you know, I got married during the pandemic. So I left New York, which is, you know, the, the, the epitome of, of a comedy city and a comedy industry to Europe where English speaking comedy is kind of a new thing. Like I'm going on the road and we're performing in cities and countries that have never seen English speaking comedy before. Uh, we performed in a tent in a, on a field for 120 people in Bratislava and Slovakia and surrounded by communist block buildings. And we were talking about the existence of God and they were cheering for us in a country where you'd be arrested to do that stuff before. So it's like, uh, this is the most romantic chapter of my comedy life because it's the most entrepreneurial and long answer to your question. But the reason why uh, you haven't seen this video before is because I wasn't good uh, about posting stuff and being as entrepreneurial as I'm being now. And, and now I am. So now the videos are coming fast and furious and I film every single set I do. And um, everything that I'm doing this week is what you'll see on, on my feeds, this, the, you know, two days later. Uh, you can be as long winded as you want. I'm notorious for inter <laughs> I will interrupt a motherfucker uh, no matter what, if I have, Good, a, I like it. If I have a question, I, if I, I love listening to you, I'm already so Every time you talk, five more questions pop up in my head. I, oh, oh, I this it. this whole European thing, the way you're talking about it makes me feel like it's 1950, but this is 2022 yeah. uh, European tour, and the stories you're telling feel like uh, – I mean, I mean, you're going to uncharted territory. It's pretty cool. I want to play with a little bit of this, and then we'll circle back. Check sure. this out, guys. This is some good stuff here. No one even believes I'm an Arab because, you know, I'm happy. <laughs> and I get that. There's not a lot of happy Arabs on TV. There's only bad Arabs doing bad things. Because we're just on the news. We don't have a TV show to counterbalance all that negativity. And TV shows humanize people. Like Will and Grace did amazing things for the gay community. The Cosby Show, well, no. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> there is something I want to show you in this. Has nothing to do with the show. Look, do, you, do, you, do you work out, Tamar? Yeah. Um. Look at this guy right here. Let me see if I can find him. Watch how this guy sits down right here in the front row. There. Took us three days to want to go home. <laughs> it's true. We got to America confident on October 28th. But three nights later, on October 30th. You see that face he makes? Yeah. You, you think he's sore? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Like, did he just do back squats last night? <laughs> Three days oh man! Go home. <laughs> it's true. We got to America. Watch his face on October twenty eighth. But three nights later, on October thirty first, <laughs> Halloween night. Either that, or he sharded his pants and he had to sit in a wet one or something. I'm like, what? What? 
That's hilarious, man. Yeah, I think it could be physically if his if his uh, if he's anticipating pain physically in the hamstrings. Yeah, uh, I think it could be a workout emotionally. If he's worried about getting the attention of a comedian while sitting in the front row, he might be like, oh, shit, don't make noise because the cut made a sound. So he's like, oh, shit, I don't want the attention of the comic. I, I've um, I've had comics on here who 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 their bread and butter is the audience. Um, I, I watched, I don't know, 50 videos of yours, and I haven't seen you interact with the audience at all now that I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I do. I definitely do. do. And there's, there's a video that went viral where I, I had a, a heckler that was so bad she threw a cocktail glass at me. No shit. Pretty, oh, yeah, man. And I used like a, a good old fashioned street comeback. It was in East London. And uh, literally the video is me apologizing to her saying, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to ruin your night. I, my goal is not to offend you. And she's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And on her way out, she goes, fuck your mother. And the whole room goes, oh. And then I go, I don't have a mom. Me and my dad share yours. And that's oh, <laughs> oh, oh, it's my favorite. Oh, it's my favorite. Oh. And the whole crowd, an East London crowd, an all-black comedy club, they all start screaming. And this sister just threw a cocktail glass at me. And I did a little little, little, uh, little uh, bob and weave. And every, the comment section was crazy. They're like, that guy boxes. <laughs> I'm oh uh Todd Glass attacks uh oh no let me see how would I find that clip? I think if you go Tamar Katan uh shuts down heckler plus uh up next if you put an up next it's a comedy platform in the UK that's kind of like a Netflix streaming service. Um, uh Tamar uh Tamar owns audience member. That's it. Yeah next up it. comedy. Yeah, that's it. Next up, that's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and do we do we actually get to see the cocktail the the no you get to see me dodge it but you don't get to see the glass flying at me okay let's let's watch a little bit oh of this. i'm so sorry that i ruined your night that was sarcasm yeah <laughs> andy i didn't mean to upset you now i don't have a mom me and my dad share yours Hey, is that um you, you know how most people uh there's there's a point in your life where like if that happened in your 20s you're pissed but in your yeah. 50s you're like man I'll, I'll never forget this day what a great day <laughs> someone threw a cocktail glass at me yeah well you know what's funny man i'll tell you i uh i i still feel shame when i say this is that i i grew up as a person that had a very bad temper and i had um and it made me a very lonely person it made it made, I lost friend after friend. I was one of those guys that was friends with people who were best friends, but I never had a best friend. I was an only child and I had a dad who psychologically didn't touch me or talk to me or anything. No so, shit. What yeah. about my whole thing about Middle Eastern men being so loving? Well, you're right. He was very loving uh, to other people. It was very- Not to his own son. Okay. Oh man, okay. even at his funeral, there yeah. was a, a woman he used to carpool with who was my age. And she said, is it okay with you guys if I mourn for him the way that we do in my culture? Mm -hmm. And we said, of course. And she got down on her knees and kind of gave a eulogy as to how he was her father. He was like a father to her. And there was a, and I was at my own dad's funeral going, he was more of a father to her than me. And it killed right, me. Right. You know, and it was, a, it was a very messed up thing. My mom explained to me that my dad lost his dad when he was very young and it broke his heart. So my dad consciously kept a distance from me 
so that when he died, I wouldn't uh, have my heart broken. <laughs> wow. So backwards, wow. so backwards, but I don't, you know, so I, I, I became a very angry guy for a very long time and uh, I lost a lot of friends. I even lost family. And, um, you know, that anger, it was like a drug addiction. And until I got to a point where maybe even my testosterone dropped a little bit and I, I softened as a human and I had, I started to have loss in my life, friends that had died um, for bad reasons to people that really didn't deserve it. You know, all that living that kind of life softens you a little bit and makes you understand your own mortality. And, and it made me start realizing how dumb my anger was and how I didn't want to be like those people. And I didn't want to be that kind of a man. And I, I felt like my dad was a vampire and he bit me and I had to go to therapy so I could be like a vampire on Twilight where I could have a girlfriend and I could have a relationship and I could go out in the sun. And so even now when hecklers get mad at me, I don't, I don't really get mad back because I know that there's no way the words that I said on that stage made them that angry. They were pre-angry. Oh, they sure. were pre-anxious, pre-stressed out. Pre and I understand that. I, I empathize with, especially now, I empathize with people who are angry, stressed out, even if they're a, a, a supporter of, of a politician who's the opposite of who I believe in, I'm not going to treat another human like they're not a human. So if someone's going to get mad at me now, I, I'm usually pretty cool, level-headed and, you know, and aware of the outside environment. I don't have tunnel vision anymore. In the most in the most superficial sense, and I don't mean that with negative connotation, it's great for your career. Everyone in the audience now remember will not forget for as long as they live the night that they went and um, watched Hammer Catan. <laughs> they, they will. That's they so will. Nice. I mean, they, it's it, it's a great comeback. Mother jokes. I try to <laughs> use one in every show. If like someone in the comments like it gets wily, I always try to make you know your mom joke. Yeah. I think they're timeless. Um, I think they're fun. Um, and and then the fact that she threw a glass at you is just so cool. Yeah, I agree. It was uh, it was a strange thing. And you know what? I, and they're I so I, cheesy. That's the other thing too. Sorry to interrupt. They're so cheesy. It's like such low hanging fruit. Like anyone else could be like, oh, every anyone could do that, and yet it still worked. She still 100%. threw a glass at you. Yeah, because you said the energy. most absurd. You said the most absurd thing. My fucking dad's dead. Can't even be real. <laughs> Exactly. My dad, my, my, me and my dad had a threesome with your mom. That, all Jokes on us, me. My dad's dead, right? Yeah. Exactly. All three of us would be screwed psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, man, it's a, uh, it's a strange thing, but I'm so much more peaceful now than I used to be. And I, it just makes me a happier person. I, I, I think I want to be kinder to people than people have been to me instead of just uh, this whole idea of if people treating me bad, I'm going to treat them bad. It's in our DNA to do that, like fraternities. You know, I was treated bad as a pledge. I'm going to be bad to pledges. And I think that's, we don't need that anymore. World life is hard enough. Yeah. What do you think about, what do you think about um, uh, um, uh, that being said, I, I like, I like to um, get on calls or hang out with guys and we, and we tease each other. Yeah. I, I've, all, I've always enjoyed that. And some guy, and, and I've had some really close friends who can't do that. Yeah, it's it's not it, it like really close friends. They can give it. They just cannot take it at all. Yeah. And they and they don't even realize that either so much. Um, are, are you OK with that? Oh, 100 percent, man. I, I think there is a here's you want to know what I think. Here's my theory. Here's my conspiracy yeah. theory. 
Uh, I don't know why I keep doing this today. I don't know. It's maybe because I can see my own hands. It's weird. Uh, here's my theory. I think since the beginning of time, countries have weaponized children. And I think this whole idea that masculinity is the opposite of vulnerability is not a part of the human uh, uh, programming. I think right. it's part of government programming. I think the boys don't cry is something that was created during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, America at one point sent letters home to all the families saying, do not hug your boys. We're wow. In a yeah, wow. they did. Letters home. It, talk about uh, government being uh, overly involved. They were telling families, do not hug your boys because we are in a cold war with the cold people. And America is not the only country that's done that. But I think this notion that boys don't cry, masculinity is the opposite of vulnerability. I mean, man, it, you could see it in our culture. Men only talk to each other intimately when we're at a bar sitting side by side or fishing sitting side by side. We cannot look each other eye to eye and express pain. It's a very messed up thing. But vulnerability is strength. And so, and that's what I'm feeling now. Like, I feel like I've become an emotional nudist, you know, where I'm like, I post videos now that make me uncomfortable. And right. I, I, I worry about, you know, are people going to think I'm, a, you know, weak or that I'm not a real man? I, I had a guy the other day post on one, I had a, a joke about the difference between men and women and how there's nothing wrong with crying. And this guy wrote real men don't cry and then made this weird emoji face. And I'm like, all right, you know. And that is, that's my fear that people are going to think that about me. But now I've like, I've lived through enough life. That I don't need external validation uh, to say that I'm a real man. I've been there for my friend whose dad died. Right. I helped my friend wash his dad whose body was riddled with cancer. I've wiped my friend's dad's ass when he was dying of cancer. I've been there with another friend, had his wife cheat on him and he was crying in my arms. I've been to Afghanistan twice performing for the uh, troops and become such good friends with a soldier that he cried and, and we hugged each other. And there's no way that that little kid with his little emoji is going to make me think that those, those men are not real men. There's no way. Right. And there's no way he's going to make me think that I'm not a real man. You know? I, I, I had a guy on the other day, I think it was Jaguar heart. And he's kind he's a, he's a, um, uh, masculinity is one of the topics he, he, in, in, in areas that he's uh, fond of. Mm. I hear you and I agree with everything you're saying. Like, like, I, like I've cried on this show a dozen times. I'm kind of proud of it. Should be. That's awesome. Feel my tear, tear ducts turn on. I've always been a good crier. But, but that being said, when I look out into the world, that's not what I see. And, and maybe I'm seeing it wrong. What I see, I don't see a problem with men being too, um, too masculine. I see a, a, a world. That is not, that is not embracing masculinity. Yeah, no, you're right. I think you're right. I, I think the uh, and this guy Jaguar Heart was saying that that we're sort of um, go, go on, go ahead. So say what you're going to say. Well, there's this interesting thing called agenda setting, where uh -huh. your media outlets will influence what you think is or is not important, or does or does not have more focus on it, just by the order of the stories they tell you. If you're watching the news and a story is the last story, you go, oh, that's very important. Okay. If a story is like a five-minute story, then you think, oh, that's that's a, the first story of the hour. It's not that important. And I think that's what happens with us. I, I don't I think right now uh it feels like masculinity is under attack because femininity is under attack and they, they're using masculinity to push off of, you know. I love I love ma my masculinity. I, I feel like I've won the lottery in a lot of ways uh by being a man. Um, 
but I, all, I, I don't really feel under, under attack. I understand why people are reacting the way they're reacting, women in particular, and it, I, don't, I don't feel under attack. I do think there are some things that are trivial, and I do think there are some things that hurt the movement uh, for women in particular, um, because every revolution needs outsiders to help. And I think like in the majority of the world, things like, for example, man spreading, spreading your legs real wide, making that an issue is like maybe in New York on the subway. But if I've seen pictures online of the guy with his legs spread open and people are like, oh, literally there's like a graphic with the degrees. It's 140 degrees. That's <laughs> man spreading. And I'm like, you're hurting your own cause. Man, man, same thing with mansplaining. Like if, if someone, I think anytime you come after someone based on their sex, you're hurting your cause. I like agree. I open up and go, you think that way just because you're a man. You can't have an opinion about abortion because you're a man. As soon as you, as soon as you, I think you, you start, you can't have that opinion because you're a black guy. Like as soon as you start doing that, you're like, by the way, I've never I, heard anyone say that last one. I just made that up. Uh, <laughs> but, but the others I've heard, it's like, yeah. What? Yeah, you're, I, I see what you're saying. You're kind of hurting your cause. Well, um, what, what, do you have an? Um, do you have a th when you when you say hurting the cause? Do you think that um, uh, people born men who are playing now in women's sports is hurting the cause? Oh, yeah. You know, it's. I think it's a. That's a tricky one. You know, like, do I think trans people have a right to be whatever gender they want to be? Absolutely, man. I think everyone man, we are not here for very long on this planet. You know, that, that's, my opinions have changed pretty dramatically over the last few years. And it's like, I, I see people who passed away really young. I've seen people who have really a lot of harshness in their lives. And if, if that's what you feel, if that's what brings you joy, then fucking A, you should be allowed to do that. Now, when it comes to sports, yeah, for the majority of the time, if gender- Yeah, yeah, of course you should be allowed to do whatever, I agree. If you're not yeah. hurting other people, do whatever you want. Yeah, but sports uh, is a different. I think sports is a different thing. I think it's got to be case by case, and you have to look at like there's certain sports where being uh, whatever gender, being born with whatever gender, isn't necessarily going to be a, a benefit. You know, it's going to and and I think that that that's where it gets. Tr it's got to be case by case. But these law, this is the problem. The laws have to be for everyone, but right or wrong is usually individualistic. It's case by case. And we're using sweeping statements to try to solve individualistic problems. And every, I think every case should be case by case. And, it, you know, in the case of like, you know, certain trans athletes where it's like, my God, this person has a massive advantage. And the difference between her and the world record for swimming, for example, is like almost 30 seconds. You're like, okay, that's insane. Like that, that then you've got to have a, case by case basis. And I'm not even saying I came to a conclusion on that case. Right. I, right. I don't know. I don't know enough, but it should be, it should be case by case because it's not fair to people who've dedicated their lives um, to a sport. And it should be even Steven. Here, here's another thing. Here, here's what I think is complicating the issue that there's too many. The, the, so, so this, this LGBTQ thing that just keeps adding letters to it. Mm. I don't think that um, every issue that um, because of which genitalia you want to be intimate with, every issue that attaches to that, you have to be on that team. So let's say they try to normalize pedophilia and they throw that on the end of this LGBTQ thing. 
I think the L's and the G's and the and the everything everyone has to jump off the bus. Like if I'm a lesbian and I see that they're allowing um, men who people who were born men jump into women's sports, I jump out. I take my L and I run. Yeah, but that's a totally different thing. <laughs> it, 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 okay, explain to me. Yeah, what do you mean? yeah. Well, I think I think with the gay community, you're talking about something yeah. that you're born with and is not is not irregular. It's a normal thing. You see it in the animal kingdom. You see right. it, it, you know, sure. in human. There are normal right. good people. I don't, you, pedophilia, I would say, is not normal, and it, and it's not good people. Within but but community. but you say that now, Tamer, uh, and, and I say that now. But like, th- so so let me give you let me give you an example. I, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, right? Yeah. Uh, um, t- t- tons of friends who were gay. I always went to the gay pride parade. I always went to the erotic exotic ball. I I partied. I love being around gay men. The reason why I love being around gay men, they were free. Yeah, I agree. They were they were fucking free. It didn't matter. You could yeah. be sitting at the bar and everyone's free. People with their shirts off, pants off, didn't matter. It was it was the streets were fucking awesome. Uh, it was it was it was such a fucking great scene. I did that yeah. for fucking ten years. Fucking awesome. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I saw the the the, the flag. I, I know what the word means. I looked up gay and homosexual. I know what it means, and it means that when you uh, want to be um, intimate with the same genitalia that you have. I mean, you know, right? I, it depends. But now on they how got you... this. Now they got the flag in front of my kid's school, <laughs> and he's in the second grade, and and I'm like, no, th- put that flag on your garage door. My, I don't want anything sexualizing my kids. And then the and then then the other side, they're like, well, they already sexualized them and talk about um, boys and girls kissing. I'm not. Two wrongs don't make a right. Sure, listen, I don't listen. I'm right? not going to you... pretend. I'm not going to pretend to know what it's like to be a dad. Right. I'm not a dad, so I can't. I didn't mean to, I didn't I, mean to come at you hard like that. No, 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 not okay. at all. Dude, this is a conversation. Okay. okay. The, the one, the, but I, I don't think that, um, I don't think that gay people think of like them being able to be in a relationship together is about sex. Mm-hmm. I think straight people do that. I think straight people think, oh, a gay guy and a gay guy. Oh, they have sex together this way. They have sex together that way. Right. My, my gay friend, when I asked him, I'm like, I'm like, why do you think people have a hard time with, with gay people? And he goes, He's all because I think that that straight people sexualize it. It's just yes, sex I agree. I'm with, all, you. I'm with me, you. I agree. I agree. He goes for from his point of view. When you tell him what does gay mean to me, he goes, "It's my ability to love someone of the same gender, not to fuck someone, but to uh, love someone of the same gender." So then, all of a sudden, so the people that make those symbols a problem are actually straight people, because to gay people, those are not sex. Those are not symbols of sex. Those are symbols of love. Um. You know, but well, it's the definition of the word, right? Gay and homosexual. When you look these words up, it, it, it's it's about it's about se- it's those definitions are about sex. Like if I were to look them up sure. on Google right now, it won't say love. That's interesting. I mean, I'm glad you're sharing that with me. I've never heard. Sure. I've never. I've never heard that. Yeah, I mean, dude, I'll tell you. When he said that to me, it was it's really great. You, the phrase "put yourself in somebody else's shoes" is something you hear all the time, but right. it's not often that you really get to feel it. Right. And I think because I you need I've ecstasy, always, you need you need MDMA to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But I've always been an outsider, and so I've always been attracted to outsiders. And whether right. those those people were um, gay people, nerds, ethnic people, minorities, whatever, like I I I learned how to empathize and at least to to listen because I think there's a great rule of thumb that I like, and it's that listening. If you want people to listen to you, the cost of that is you have to listen to them. So listening is the cost of being heard. You want people listening, you've got to listen to them. And I think if you listen to them versus listening to other straight people about what it means to be gay, I think the intensity 
will, will, will go way down on, on what those symbols might mean to children or, or the, the intention of, uh, I, I've seen, I've seen straight guys try to recruit straight women into having sex with them a lot more often than I've seen anybody gay try to recruit anybody into being gay. Word. You know I mean? Yeah. 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 For, and for every, sure. I've been to for a lot sure. of gay bars. I've never had anybody hit on me. It's a little bit upsetting to be honest, but every time I go out with any, any of my friends that are in the finance district, I yeah. get my ass slapped repeatedly. Right. <laughs> like, right. I've you, mean, never you, mean, in, you mean in the city in San Francisco? Well, it's New York in particular. Okay. My God, like guys that are like hyper macho will touch my ass exponentially more than any of my gay friends ever would. True. True. You know, so it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, uh, I think it's perspective and I think it's important to listen to other people before we, before we the, judge. The only, the only, um, I, I've told this story, but the only, uh, time I, anyone's ever honked at me was uh after uh, after a night of being at a rave in the, in the city and i was walking through the uh by the panhandle with my shirt off and a car <laughs> full of guys honked at me oh you're, you're a lucky guy that's uh and i liked it i liked a, it i was a, like fuck i'll take it in the panhandle i mean that's that's a compliment you you distracted from a lot of ugly things so i'll take it <laughs> and the panhandle used to be so nice yeah god san francisco used to be so nice yeah I mean, you're the you're the only in 500 guests I've had. You're the only guest that has pronouns in their um, Instagram signature. How did yeah. you? What what is your? Why did you do that? What 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 is what is your um, your thoughts I, on that? I just talked to some gay friends, and and uh, I can't pretend that that my gay friends are not constantly under attack, and I can't pretend that attacking gay people is the beginning and the end. Because oh, explain they, what you mean by that. What do you mean by that? So when they, they have an insatiable appetite. So after they minimize gay people and take away their rights and make other people think that they're less human beings and allow other people to not serve them because of their religious beliefs and, and not treat them as, as equal Americans and not have the same rights as everybody else, then they go after minorities. Okay. And then they go after gay and then they go after women and then they go after, they will not stop until the only people that have all the rights, human rights that we all should have are them and a small group of their friends uh, uh, you know, at the white house. I, I, I think it's a danger. I think power is a drug. It, it, should, it is a more powerful drug than cocaine or heroin or anything. We shouldn't judge drugs on what they look like on the outside of our body. We should judge drugs on what they do to us on the inside of our body. And use people in power are not normal. They are not normal. And and the more power they get, the more corrupt they get. The more uh, the, the more they lack conscience. The more they lack humanity. Um, and you see it. Dictators are constantly referred to as monsters. Well, okay, let's stop calling them monsters and start looking at the source that's turning human beings into monsters. You know, they said, oh, Hitler was a vegetarian. Hitler loved dogs. Mussolini was a normal guy. J Kim Jong-un at one point was a all these men were normal people at one point and they became monsters. So what's the source? It's power. And I think, I don't think anybody has a right to take away anybody else's freedom, no matter what group they come from. People don't have to believe what you believe. Just let other people live. If they were created, there's not one religion that says that gay people were not created by God. They were. It, if, if you believe in God and you believe he's this perfect being and, and doesn't make mistakes, then those gay people are part of his creation and you shouldn't fuck with them. So you, if I'm following right, you're saying that if we allow people to persecute gay people, 
which is which is insane and you see that in the world or, or to minimize them that that sets precedent that it's okay to do it to anyone and it's a slippery slope and 100 and that's how it happened putting, in nazi germany and by putting um he, right right and by putting uh he by putting your pronouns on there somehow no sorry the, the oh, pronouns okay. is because i i was speaking to a gay friend and, and i was saying hey what do you think of straight people who put their pronouns up he's like it's in, it's incredibly helpful because it shows people that, that it normalized the idea that we have control over our pronouns. And so even though my pronouns have never been in question and I'm, you know, I've, I've never been, but uh, isn't that a lie? We're not in control of our pronouns. I mean, what, what, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Here's what yeah. I mean by that. Do you, you don't have to believe that you are in control of your pronouns, but if someone else believes that and they, and they, they, then I can respect that. Do you know what I mean? But, but like, I, I totally hear you. I'm concerned that we are – first of all, I don't – so he, this is a perfect example, Tamara. How I mean, is that a gay issue? Isn't that a trans issue? Uh, yeah, I think it's a trans issue, and I think it's probably – I don't know enough, man. I think that there's there's people who are gender fluid who I don't think would identify as gay. I think are you gender are fluid? Too. You're no. 50. No. Um, have you ever thought of your – because I've never even thought of my gender. I always just think of my sex. Sure, man. I mean, but there's, I've met enough people in my life where they've gone to a, a place in their life or made a decision in their life based on experience they had. And I never had that experience. Right. So I, I, I can't judge the conclusion without the experience. I can I listen. Guess what to I mean is I don't know how to think of my gender. Mm, it would be yeah. like, if I don't know how to think of E equals MC squared. Right. I hear that. And I'm like, Oh shit. That's some like smart Einsteinian shit. Like yeah. I know how to think of sex because, and maybe it's just cause I'm so, um, I don't know, simple, but I think of, um, I think of sex as, uh, like your, your biological, your penis and your vagina, but, I, but yeah. gender, I'm not sure how to, I, I never hear a voice in my head saying I'm a man or I need to do this because I'm a man or, or if I do this, people will think I'm feminine. But the great part is that you don't have to. I mean, you you said right, something right, that right. you said okay, something right. in the beginning right. that I can hundred percent relate to, and I wish more people would acknowledge. You said you've never felt more free than when you were in the company of gay people, right? Right. right. When you were in not, those gay not, not not gay women, not, not gay women. Sorry, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. Not gay women, gay men. I, but gay, gay men, men right? yeah, yeah. The hugs are better. Uh, everything's better. <laughs> Everything is better with gay men. They're, they're awesome. I'm not saying well, I haven't met some great gay women, but gay sure. men are like if I if I had to live in a world, the hierarchy would be uh, 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 gay men, uh, uh, straight women, uh, straight men, then gay women. I, if, I, if I if I if I had to just pick you in order of who I'd, I'd live with. And just hey, I, and I completely understand uh, that conclusion because and I realize it's a gross generalization, a stereotype. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Fucking whatever. No, man, I understand it. If you look at pop culture, straight men and I'm sorry, straight women and gay men. What an amazing collaboration. Oh, right, my God. Right, the right. good work that straight women and gay men do together. I right. wish that straight men had that kind of relationship with gay women. You know what I mean? I mean, straight right. women learn about oral, how to be better at oral sex, shopping. Fa there's so many things. There's, there's TV shows about it. So I think straight, straight men culturally have really been a force of nature when it comes to contributing to society, the, to straight society. Whereas right. I, I think lesbians have, have been a little bit more uh, in the closet for lack of a better phrase. <laughs> there's, so there's some angst. I mean, this is completely a stereotype and, and, and I am probably the most worldly person I know, but that being said, uh, 
I, I don't, I, I feel the opposite around um, gay women. I feel instead of being free, I feel a, under attack. Not me personally. Why? Why um, th there's just a, an, ang an, an anger and a judgment and a, um, you know, there, there's, there's such a strong pushback. Like when you talk about safe places, say <clears throat> feeling safe, I feel like all these places that are supposed to be safe places are actually the most judgmental places. Yeah, I could I could see why you'd feel that. Yeah, it's and, listen, uh, it's not easy. It's and I think we don't talk about this enough because anytime we do speak about how hard it is to be a straight man, people get angry. Right. And and everyone. By the way, it's not hard for me at all. Like I have kids, I'm off the shelf. I, I didn't mean to say that, but but I but I'm, but I'll go with you on this. Okay. Listen, but it's a hard time for everyone, is what right. I'm saying. Right. I, I, I this is in no way uh, like an. I, I'm not in any way trying to say it's harder for men. Than for women. I know women's lives are harder. Like the only time I've had to say no means no is when someone kept offering me kombucha. You know what right, I mean? Right, so it's, right. I understand that women's lives are harder, but to not acknowledge that it's a, it's a confusing time for straight men or that straight men, a lot of times I've seen straight men saying, Hey, I want some help understanding this. you like, yeah, like what yeah. you just said with the pronouns. And the response is so aggressive and so shut down. That it's unfortunate, man. Like, I understand the reason for the response. There's a reason why we have a phrase called the bullied become bullies, right? right. There's, there's a need for justice in, 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 in humanity where if you were bullied, then you bully people back. It's in order to get people on your side during a revolution, women have to be better than men. Gay people have to be better than straight men. And it's hard for them to be like, wait a minute. We've had all this time where the world was kind of defined through the lens of straight men. And now that we're asking for equality, you're telling us we have to be even better than them. And it's like, unfortunately, yeah, you do. You, and you have to be uh, just as aggressive as we were and asking for what you want. But you have to be even kinder than we were because well, you yeah. weren't happy with us. More patient, more patient. You have to be more patient than we were. You have to be kinder than we were. You have to be you have to be better people to us than we yeah. were to you. If, if we want this world to get to a better place, you, you can't out men, man. Hey, be uh, that's the, th be, be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. The, I the like Gan that. The, the Gandhi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but I, I think it's true. And I think they'll do it, but it's just, this is all new, man. Like I, I think we're living through a really interesting time and I don't think we sure. realize how, how chaotic it is until uh, maybe when we're old people and younger generations are telling us, wow, you know, Tell me about the time when they used to have mass shootings. <laughs> I, 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 I sometimes remind myself that I, I remember being a, a young boy. My mom was driving me to school and the radio was playing and it said in Peru uh, earlier today, a school bus flipped over uh, down a cliff and 27 children died. And I remember at that moment, probably being in the seventh or eighth grade thinking, holy shit, 50 years ago, we would have never known that happened. Yeah. What a trippy world we live in. And yeah. so today it's that times a billion and it, no exaggeration in terms of everything we know. And yeah. you think there were people born who went through World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, uh, 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 well, that thing where they wouldn't sell alcohol. Uh, I forget what that thing's called. Um, all that shit. And, and that I would I would much rather go through what we're going through now than World War One and World War Two. And so in that regards, I'm like, shit, this shit's easy. 100%. You, you want to hear a crazy thing that I heard? I read this article about a guy that's a demographer. He studies populations. Uh -huh. And he said that every population, 
they, they like in the demographer world, every population has an object that they consider a gift that the generation gave to the society. Mm-hmm. So our generation was, you know, X generation X. We had no wars, no Columbine, no 9-11, no economic distress. So we weren't afraid of anything. So the product we, we were most known for was extreme sports. Wow. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid wow. to die and I wow. don't need, I don't need anyone. Yeah. I'm not afraid to die and I'm not afraid to do this alone. Yeah. And then the generation after group with Columbine, 9-11, economic distress, all this stuff. And the product they're most known for is social media. All my friends with me all the time, they're cocooning. It's a cocoon against yeah. what's happening in the macro environment. So a lot of people are like, oh, this generation's so soft. Yeah, they're going through a hell of a lot more than you did when you were their age. Of right. course, they're, and they're supposed to be softer, by the way. That's why the evolutionary chart, the guy bending over is complaining about the guy standing straight up going, that guy's such a pussy. He's supposed right. to be. If you yeah. did your job as a generation, the next generation should be softer. And so it was very interesting to me to, uh, to hear this generation identified as the loneliest generation that's ever existed. They're lonely. And when you take away their social media, you take away their friends, their family, their sense of time because they don't wear watches. So social media to them is protection from all the horrific things that they're hearing in the outside world that has now become not white noise, red hot noise. And I don't even know what that word means. Do you know that? Lonely. Which word? Lonely. Loneliness. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I, like I heard I, it's this huge problem during the pandemic. I have no idea what that word means. I like. I think that's the beauty of family, my friend. Yeah. And and it's I a, really enjoy being alone. Yeah. If I, if I can get some time alone, I, 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 I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, I think that it might be the Turn my of radio family. off in my car. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. I, I think you might have that perspective because you're a dad, you know, and you have right. people that need you and count on you. And that's a beautiful thing. Like it's fun. I'll tell you the time I felt most lonely. I even, I even wrote a joke about it. I said, this racist guy told me to go back where I came from. And I said, I did. They hated me. (laughs) And and that was, that was that point Uh, where I was too American for Middle Eastern people and too Middle Eastern for American people. And I was in this weird place in the middle and my God, thank God for comedy. Thank God for helping me find other outsiders. Jerry Seinfeld said it in his documentary comedian where he said he never wanted to be the best. He just saw a group of comedians at a comedy club and he said, I want to be like them. Right. It was, I feel like a hermit crab where my Arabic and American shell was broken. So I had to find a Dixie cup called comedy that I slid into. <laughs> and now I'm like this hermit crab walking through the streets of New York with trash on my back. But that's, that's my protection now. My protection is is comedy. It's it's I've found myself in my loneliness. If you if you accept the premise that like we're really nothing, like and, and like you were saying, we're just we're just on a we just have a short short time here on planet Earth, and and like be be what you want to be and do what you want to be. I think what you were saying and, and pursue what you want to pursue. That there's. And and you fancy yourself a comedian, and so you you and you fancy it's the most yourself- British thing you've ever said. Nah, you thank fancy you. yourself a comedian, <laughs> and, and and you and so you want the rest of us to participate in the. I I don't want to say delusion, 
but 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 like so i tell everyone my name's sevon and i want everyone to participate in the delusion of my identity right <laughs> on on this on this level this my yeah. my parents named me and now i'm trying to hold this fucking character together as he fucking traverses planet earth named sevon trying to hold this motherfucker like together yeah when i the the less i have to hold together the happier i am amen 100%. so when so when i have to participate when I see this is going back to the he him uh, is thing, I feel like I'm participating in helping people keep their delusion together in a way that might not be healthy. The same way I participate, if I think the word kike is a bad word, I'm demanding that every Jewish boy and girl who's born onto planet Earth, then it ha we have a gift waiting for them. We have this word that you're supposed to be offended by your whole life. Here you go. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. holy fuck. Why do we have that waiting for little Jew kids? Yeah, it's hard. How about we it's, throw that? How about we free that word? How about we make it say it means uh happy birthday? Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I trip. Um, I, I, I just trip on it. I, I, um, this is kind of a, 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 a uh, interesting segue but when did you decide that you were going to be be able to call yourself a comedian like i directed and produced <laughs> 10 movies and i still wow. did never felt comfortable calling myself a director people yeah. i'd meet people at film festivals and be like i'm a director and i'm like oh what did you make oh, i haven't made any movies yet i'm like i walk away i'm like i made 10 movies i don't have the balls to tell someone i'm a director yeah. i was the same way i was very uh i was very cautious about it i, I had a lot of respect for comedy especially for people people who did it professionally. So I think it took me almost five years before I, I remember the day I changed it on my Facebook. It was a bigger deal than saying in a relationship to say a comedian was yeah. a much bigger deal to, to say anything else. But I'll, I'll say one thing about what you said earlier. Please, please. I, I, as I've been, now that I'm in Europe and I, I've been, I've literally in four different countries every month, four to okay. five different countries every month. And it's, we're disappointingly unexotic, you know, Everywhere I go, Americans. No, everybody. We're the oh, same. everybody. Okay, everybody. We're the okay. same. Right, right. And everywhere I go, I'm waiting to be blown away by the level of exoticism, and it's yeah. not happening. Yeah. We're all the same. But the one thing I I, I keep thinking about is the movie um, The Matrix, and I feel like you know, there's red pill people yeah. who are like, the world is out of my control. There are some things that are ugly. There are some things that I don't agree with, but this is real, and I'd rather have that than the boo pill. Right. It makes everything pretty. Everything is what I want. Everything is what I agree with. But yeah. this isn't reality. And I think there's red. And I started like myself, you know, consciously going, what are red pill cities and blue pill cities? And yeah. like a place like Berlin was very red pill where it was so creative and so artistic and so inspiring. But there was also the drug addicts and the graffiti and the trash and the irony is that red pill ugliness kept away the blue pill people that were a little bit racist or a little bit prejudiced or who kill art, who gentrify neighborhoods in a way, you know? And I, so I started like going, what am, what am I? Like, what, what do I want and how do I want to live? And I, that freedom to me was more important than anything else was to be free because yeah. I, I think creativity I don't know if I believe in God. I don't think my brain is capable to make a decision on whether or not one exists. So I'm probably more agnostic than anything else. But what I do know is that creativity is something 
and where it comes from is from a place that's much bigger than what I am. Mm-hmm. And for me, in order to be creative, I don't, I don't necessarily write things down. I just get very still. I get calm. I cut out the outside noise and I, I just sit patiently and it comes. And to me, that's proof that there's something out there and that freedom is important. All the things that I admire in my life have come from places where there was freedom and ugliness. And so I decided I'm a red pill person. And that's kind of the lens I look through when, when I get challenged in my life. Like, hey, there's there's somebody that's doing this thing and oh, is this healthy for them? But that's not my that's not my decision. That's their decision. Because if I want to have my freedom respected, I have to respect their freedom too. And I'm totally cool with people that are like, you know what? I'm a blue pill person. I live in a blue pill city. And I'm like, cool, I'll come visit you. Uh, Do you think I've never heard anyone say they're a blue pill person. Have you ever heard that? Well, I know people that are like, I'd rather live in a gated. I think people live in a gated community, for example, are blue pill people. I want to keep, I want to keep the ugliness out. Oh, I want to live in a neighborhood that I'm going to sacrifice access to cool restaurants, access to cool music to live in a place that feels safer. I think that's a, that's a blue pill decision. I here's what I think. This is maybe this is so fucking self-righteous of me, but <laughs> I think of blue pill people as people who don't, uh, who um, don't want to be logical. And I think red pill people are people who accept no matter how much they hate the number four, they accept the fact that two plus two is four. And I, <laughs> and I could, and I could give you some real world examples of that. Um, uh, so I'm pro choice, right? But, uh, but I, but I, I post so much stuff that's pro-life because I support pro-life because I, because I, 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 because I think that, um, I think it's insane to justify, to spend your life justifying the killing of fetuses or terminating pregnancies or anything like that. But I'm pro-choice because I believe that the precedent should be give women their right. But, but I think that the entire left that people who support, I think the vast majority of people who are pro-choice are all blue pilled. They're asleep. They're not being honest. They're not willing to have an honest discussion about what's really going on here. There's never discussion about the harm that's done to women psychologically, or there's this excuse that they're going to put big, it's more, it's their, their their rationale is it's better to kill a baby than have them be born in the ghetto and have a hard life. I'm like, wait, what? Like, that's your stance. Like, what if there is a God and he's like, Hey, you killed that baby. Sure. Now like, here, yeah, and so and so, I feel like the blue pill people are the people who just don't want to be. They don't want to have the discussion, the logical discussion. And you know, I I, and I'm okay with it. People are like, Stefan, how can you be okay with killing babies?" I go, "I don't know, but I am." Yeah, because I don't want put laws on women's bodies. And same thing with my iPhone. This motherfucker's made on child labor. I ain't gonna deny it. Yeah. I participated. Sorry, I'm I'm coping, and 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 that's how I. That's why I feel like I'm a um. A red pill. No, I get it. And listen, I mean, I, I, I used to watch, uh, I like watching animal programs to try to understand human behavior. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 Like animal planet, even Caesar Milan, you know, and Caesar Milan used to say this thing where there's no such thing as a bad dog. It's just Mm. bad owners, bad behavior. And I think that mindset's so strong. Yeah. Not like what Caesar said. That's what you were saying earlier. There's not bad people that that's another way you're saying when there's not exotic people. It's just yeah. people, man. It's just people. Yeah. We're yeah, all the like same. Okay. A lot of people that you might hate, you might be exactly like them if you were born there. Oh, of that, course, that, right? It, We'd all know? be Hitler if we had his circumstances. That's a great Eckhart Tolle line. Yeah. Like, hey, man, yeah. if you were in the, if you were that dude, you'd be that dude. So we should we should hate the circumstances and try to fix the circumstances instead of attacking the people all the time. 
And I think that's where we will get to that eventually. But I think at the end of the day, what I'm learning is I was right when I was eight years old and I started listening to punk rock music. I, and I labeled myself an anarchist. I, at eight years old, I knew the government was bad. And I think that's what happens now. I think the way the runways in Paris can dictate the way people want to dress in Oklahoma are the way behavior at the White House can dictate the way neighbors treat each other in Oklahoma. I think that it's become, I think it's a shitty government, a divided government, horrific behavior by our politicians. The, for years, they've told us that musicians need to be better role models. They are piece of shit role models, and they are making our streets more dangerous. Amen. Because the way they treat each other is signaling that it's okay for my neighbor to be aggressive towards Oh, me. shit. Oh, shit. It's You're their fault. They are, they are the bad owner holding the leash, telling Caesar Milan, what's wrong with my dog? It's yeah. you, motherfucker. It's yeah. you. Yeah. And it's our government both sides that need to be held accountable. They are responsible for the mass shootings. They are responsible for people's brains breaking because they've treated- The lack of honest conversation around- uh, 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 Yeah. They keep presenting the abortion issue also as like women's rights or or these rights. or this. It's like, hey, hey, you're, you're telling us how to think about it. Like stop yeah. telling us how, like stop telling us how to think about it. Yeah. Because people are believing you. Yeah. And, it's, wow. and it should be, you're making universal laws- for individual problems, universal solutions for, and everybody knows that it doesn't work like that. And so to demonize someone for whatever decision they make, when you don't know the individual story to teach us to think that way, yeah. like, like politics of sports is hurting all of us on an individual level every single day. It's like our politicians are sneezing emotional contagions on us like COVID. They're yeah. sneezing anger. They're sneezing anxiety. They're sneezing stress because they're, they could lose their jobs at any minute and they're stressing all it's all that is where the head vampire lives. That's what the problem is. And when they behave better, all of us will be able to exhale. Sneezing, emotional cantogens. Contagions. Yeah, man. I like it. Uh, I, I, I loved everything you said. I want to tweak this one part. Sure. Um, about. So earlier you said you were saying that we have to be the change we want to see in the world. I, I I'm almost dogmatic in agreeing with you on that. And I don't, I think that when we try to change other people's circumstances, we actually fuck everything up. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I want, I want to recommend this, uh, a book to you. It's Stephen King's only nonfiction book. Oh, wow. And it's called on writing. And oh. you said, and in this, and I, I listened to it on audio and in here, he says he's in a band. Of, of all, with other authors and uh -huh. he says that none of the people in the band would ever ask each other hey where does your inspiration come from writing because no real creative person knows where it comes from and that's what you were saying earlier 100%. i don't believe in god but i know there's some shit coming to me from somewhere i'm not sure if i believe in god or not but there's some shit coming from to me from somewhere and i'm not sure where that is but that might be where god is i think i heard you say something like that and I'm like, oh, you, you nailed it yeah. <laughs> Um, the, the, you also made me think this, I don't believe in God, but, but here's the, the fucked up part. The loneliest I've ever been in my life was in my twenties and I was the closest to God. Yeah. And it was lonely as fuck, yeah. but man, I was close to something. Yeah. hundred percent. Man. Man. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, rehab. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a drug. That sounds expensive. That sounds. Ex 
It was expected. <laughs> I mean, at the time, I was making a tr- I was making really good money. I was a vice president of a pretty big advertising agency, and uh, I was well, very so you're good. You're creative at- through and through. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. I'm an immigrant, so the the idea of picking a job in entertainment wasn't in my wheelhouse. I I picked advertising because I thought this is how you can get paid for being creative. So that was the, that was the only that was the only reason why I picked advertising. And that's when I had the problem because I was very good at a job I didn't like. Although I, I respect it now, but at the time I didn't I didn't like that job very much. But I was I was very lucky because I found out that I wasn't addicted to drugs. I was addicted to not feeling sad. I I grew up always being told, like on top of growing up in a macho neighborhood with a boxer dad, I was taught that uh Boys don't cry. Um, and I made someone my- told you that someone told you that. <laughs> oh my God. My dad, I had a joke about it where I said the first time my dad said, stop crying, be a man is after the doctor slapped me in the butt and said, it's a boy. Like, wow, it was, okay, uh, okay. like my dad did not like crying. And the other thing is I was the, the funny guy to my friends. So when I was sad, they looked at me like, what the fuck is going on? Like, right. th- we don't, uh, my, my sense of humor was my identity. So I was taught, you know, almost like Pavlov's dog, when you're sad, people get away from you and people don't recognize you and they don't like you. So, so I was lucky that I found out that I wasn't addicted to drugs. I was addicted to not feeling sad. And so anytime I felt sad, I'd go to drugs and that, that became a problem. You know, did you ever go to jail? Did you ever get caught for drugs? Uh, I got real close. Um, I, I did go to jail, uh, not for drugs though. Um, but I'd say as a consequence drugs yeah um but it was just fortunately for me it was an overnight uh thing and i was fortunate enough and privileged enough to have a good lawyer yeah and um but i got lucky i had a very good therapist because for me when i went to the 12-step program that was an audience and i was a comedian yeah (laughs) and and you know i was born a comedian so i i wanted them to like me right so i manipulated uh my situation but then when i had a therapist and it was one-on-one in front of a guy that was smarter than me and, and had seen a lot of people that came from, from where I came from, he was just like, stop trying to be funny. And I was like, and it was like telling an Italian, stop using your hands. I felt like I could, I almost stopped talking. And, and then um, in the middle of the story, he said, you know, what are the end of the session? He said, what are your goals? And I said, I, I want to stop doing cocaine. And he goes, no, no, that's too much. And I'm like, what? He's all, I mean, your goals for this week. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stop doing cocaine. He's like, no, that's too much. I don't want to take away the cocaine until I figure out what you're medicating. I, I want to find out what you're medicating before I take away your medicine, even if it's bad medicine. And when he said that, I immediately trusted him. So then my goal became to do less cocaine. But I had a therapist telling me, it's okay. Keep doing it. Why, and, why, why was it bad to, to be funny in your sessions? And, uh, because-, because I was avoiding the, the pain. Like I made a joke, for example, I made a joke that um, if it, it was very weird to be bullied by your own father, because sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'd see the bully's face. And I said it was very and I And he said, is there anything strange or unusual? And I go every once in a while, I tell him about something where it made me feel something, but my brain didn't understand it. And one of the things is that I always look like my dad when I was brushing my teeth. And, and I stopped looking at myself in the mirror when I brushed my teeth. And I ended up always getting toothpaste on my shirt. So at the session, the therapist noticed, and I go, yeah, I always brush my teeth away from the mirror. And, and, and he goes, why, why do you do that? And I said, because that's when I look most like my dad. And then several sessions later, he brought in a mirror and he said, show me how you brush your teeth. And I'm like, what? He's like, just pretend 
you're brushing your teeth. And I went like this. I gritted my teeth and I made a fist. And it, and that broke my heart. You know, it broke my heart that uh, the time I looked most like my dad is when the face he made when he was right about to hit me. And that kind of shit, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't, and it, I hated the therapist. He would tell me things that would make me hate him and I would not go for a month. And then I'd go back. And it was just like, like stuff like that, like stuff like that. Like you, you hated the fact that he pulled like the, the curtain up on that. Yeah. Because I just wanted to be happy. And he made me understand, like, you're not going to be happy until you talk about um, what makes you sad first, because I was just covering the sadness instead of trying to scoop it out like the cancer that it was. Could you've done, can you do that by yourself? Um, I think, I think now I can, I think now, um, he's given me the tools, not only it's really funny because everyone always talks about tools, but really for me, it was the perspective he gave me, he gave me his eyes, which were the eyes of forgiveness, like being able to like forgive myself and forgive my dad. Like when I thought of my dad as a predator, I could never forgive my dad and I could never forgive myself. But when I thought of him as a victim, I understood that my dad was abused too. And the guy that abused my dad was like a vampire, bit my dad, turned my dad into a vampire. And then my dad bit me. And now it's my job to break that cycle. Yeah. When that anger went away and I wasn't mad at my dad anymore. And I said, no, my dad is like me, a victim. I'm not like him, a predator. And that energy change, man, it was a life changer. But it 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 took me years to, to accept it. Um, How did you find this therapist? Actually, it was very funny. It was a, a comedy teacher. And you know, I was in a, a comedy class, a workshop for like experienced comics. It was like a writing workshop. And um, I wrote a, a joke about child abuse. And he started to give me feedback about the joke. And he referred to my dad the way I referred to my dad and said, okay, it's obvious your dad's an asshole. And I couldn't hear anything else. It was very strange to hear someone else call my dad that. Yeah, you didn't like that. I didn't like it. Yeah, And yeah, he yeah. saw it in my face and he said, listen, I want you to know that I'm a very big fan of yours. I love your comedy. I think uh, you're not only do I think it's good, I think it's important. He said, but I can't have you back in my class until you go to therapy because I can, I feel like I petted a dog and the dog started growling and I don't oh, want to get shit. And he goes, and I don't want to get bit and I don't want you to bite. Oh and, shit. Oh yeah. shit. His name was Jerry Katzman. Uh, this is crazy jew jew jewish guy jew and hey this day to this day another jew psychologist this is fucking crazy yeah man he changed my life he made me feel he just imagine someone going up to you and saying i'm wearing x-ray glasses that's what it felt like i'm like what the fuck yes so naked you know and uh but i loved him and i loved the kindness that he'd had throughout the class and i think he was very measured and when he made the decision to expose me he showed me first that he loved me as a, as a, as a brother and, and showed me kindness, not just to me, but to my peers. And I knew that I couldn't have my brain trick me into believing he was a bad guy. He wasn't a bad guy. He was a good guy. And his intention wasn't bad. It was good. And so uh, it took me a while to get through that. It took me a year to go back to his class, but during that, but I eventually went to the, the therapist and he was amazing. This is in New York city. Uh, this was actually back in LA. Crazy. But I kept using him. I mean, story. we would we would Skype on uh, or over the computer. We even had we started having sessions. It was twice a week to once a week to once a month. 
and it was a uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was a life changing experience. It's why I I hate what happened to my dad. I hate that my dad believed that the right thing to do was to keep away from me. My, my if you ask my dad anything about me, he he's never had a conversation with me that lasted more than five minutes. It's heartbreaking. And until he got cancer. So to me, cancer wasn't a bad thing. Cancer was the first time my dad told me he loved me. So, so it, it's really taught me that bad things aren't always bad. You know, Do you, are, are you going to have kids? And you know, it's a funny thing. I, I think it's uh it's something my wife and I got married and we both agreed that we weren't and that we didn't want to have kids, but right. I, I love the shit out of this woman, you know, and she loves me and she's, and I'll tell you, I, She's hot. She's hotter than me. So I loved her. I saw her. She is hot. She is hot. I saw her. She's hot and she's great and she's loving and she's kind. But I didn't, I didn't really know what love was. I didn't really know I loved her until, uh, she started talking to me about the stuff that I experienced in my childhood and started telling me, um, that she forgives me and made me feel like no matter what I do, she'll always love me. You you can't feel unconditional love until you're a hundred percent vulnerable. And when I was 100% vulnerable and expecting to feel for someone to say, you are too broken, I can't be with you. Mm -hmm. Instead, she told me, I love you even more. Yeah. Oh, my. That's when I was like, I I, I don't think I could love anyone more than I love this woman. And it was the first time that we thought, hey, maybe we we can have kids. You make a love child. You make a love child. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. Through your shit. Yeah. 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 So it's something we're thinking about now. We have a cat and we're going to build up from there. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, um, I was with my wife for 20 uh, some odd years. We knew we would never get married or have kids. We thought people who got married were just tools. Like you're just, <laughs> you're just following in the step of the man. And we know ne- we, we never thought we would have kids. And then when I was 43 and she was 39, um, we, our, our life was so good. We had had, you know, we had worked through all of our shit basically and we were so in love and, and we were living with a woman who was breastfeeding and that kind of got my wife all frazzled and <laughs> stimulated. And then a woman said to my wife, a woman who has three, three kids, she says, if you have kids, you won't regret it. If you don't have kids, you might regret it. And so when she said that to my wife, my wife said, okay, let's have a kid. And then, so, so we started ha- having unprotected sex and she, and, and I would tell myself every time too, because I'd ask my mom, why did you and my dad have a child? And she said, we wanted to make a love child. So I would always tell myself wow. while I was with my wife, I would try to be like, I want a love child. I want to love, you know, Haley more than I've ever loved her before this night. And like, I would try like to summon a love child, you know, a spirit, That's a spirit beautiful. from a love child. Yeah. That's and the way we, people should think. People yeah. should People should be like a love child. That's a, that's what it should be. I think for too many people, it's an obligation child to yeah. my culture or to or my sma- family. Or smash that pussy child. Yeah. <laughs> I do like smashing that pussy ch- child too. But but this, the, my children are love children. That's beautiful, man. Um. So so I I I can't uh I can't um I can't recommend it. <laughs> I can't. I, I just feel like if you're in love, it sounds like I think that is one of the side effects of really loving someone. You start, um, you, you want to plant a garden together. I think you're right. It's, you you, you so want to cool. start, yeah, you want to like have your own plants and your pets and you want to start growing things together and yeah. you want to like, you want to do some. 
Um, why 40? Why a comedian at 40? What, what were you, were you just like, fuck, I've always wanted to be a comedian and I haven't done it. What am I it's doing? A, it's a dark answer, man. It was after my dad died. Okay. Oh that's, shit. No. Uh, really? Wow. Yeah, that's it was, dark, but cliche, right? Holy yeah. fuck. Like I'm going to die. You felt your own mortality. You're like, I better well, no, do something I really want to do. Actually a little bit different, a little bit okay. of that, a little okay. bit of that. I think you're right. I think there's some of that in there, but the other stuff is that I never realized that I was chasing my dad's respect my whole life. Mm. I was chasing my dad's love my whole life. And so by chasing that love, I wanted to chase the things that would make him happy. And as a Middle Eastern person, my cat's going crazy right now. Would you stop it, you prick? Okay. Uh, so for me, I just wanted to make my dad happy. And the thing was, oh, I got to get real estate, you know? And so it was about getting the house and, and succeeding at work and, and reaching all these goals that really weren't my goals. They were his. And when he passed away, it was like somebody ripped the GPS out of my car. And they're like, okay, now you figure out where you're going. And it was oh. the first, first time where I looked at myself and said, what makes you happy? Why not and impress your mom? Why your dad? You know, it's a very both. weird, it's a very weird thing. It's a good, it's a great question. I used to always say my family. First time you said that uh, hour and 24 minutes. <laughs> I resent you. Well, I felt it. I felt it. But I used to say my family's definition of warmth was a head in the oven and feet in the freezer. Like my, my dad would over discipline me and my mom would over love me. And they yeah. each thought they were correcting the other person's mistake. So, very normal, by the way. Very, very normal. normal. My, my wife and I, we have all sorts of problems now that we have kids and they're all around that. Yeah. But imagine if your parents were the judges on America's Got Talent. My dad was Simon. I cared about his opinion the most because I knew that when he said something good, it was real. Yeah. And my, my mom was like Paula Abdul. Everyone was amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I love my mom, but I knew that my mom would love me no matter what. Yeah. And I, and I knew that my dad's love was conditional. Yeah. You know, it's important. Kids have that. That's the way it is with my mom, to, with my with my wife, too. Um, I wanted to impress my mom. That's great. That's beautiful. And in my 30s, in my late 20s, I realized I need to stop doing that. I had an awakening. That was my first taste of the red pill. And then in my, then my whole 30s and 40s were kind of like all the way till I was about 45. There was a 15-year period where then I, I kept like trying to do things that I wanted to do instead of impress my mom. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was yeah. cool. It was cool. But and, and then finally now, and thank God my mom's still alive and healthy and awesome and still like I see her every single day. She's a huge That's part great. of my life. But now I'm just like, fuck it. I'm I'm completely fucking untethered on this podcast now. That's 500, 500. And you know what? My mom still accepts me. Exactly. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know the, the first bit of dark advice I got as a comedy writer? What? From the nicest guy I've ever met. He said, you have to write as if both your parents are dead. Wow. Wow. And I was like, whoa. He goes, that's a dark thing, but that is freedom. Because yeah. if, you're, if both your parents are gone, no one's going to tell you how to write, what to write. And what will come out will be, will be real. Um, but it's in interesting, too, that you are 50. You move to your, – your mom's happy to live in America, happy to be an American, has a good life here. And then you go to um, uh, Portugal, and she follows you. Yeah. I mean, well, she wasn't. Or you bring her. Why is that? Well, I think she wasn't 100% happy in, in America. Things have changed. She's lived in Huntington Beach, which is a, a beautiful community with a lot of wonderful people. But at the time, it was like a lot of skinheads were starting to pop up and a lot of like very aggressive uh, political divisiveness 
was starting to happen. It was a battleground. Uh, Huntington Beach Pier became a place where a lot of activists would go and literally fist fight each other. What year and is this? This was uh, two years ago. You know, right? Three, okay. Yeah, about okay. Uh, maybe a year and a half ago, even. And uh, and also, I love the shit out of my mom. She's a great person. My mom's like my friend. You know, she's not yeah. like a regular mom in that sense. And and I'm an only child. My dad's passed away, and and you know, we didn't have a big community. So we've always felt like it was just the three of us. And so having her here was like, I think not just, I didn't just do it for her. It was selfish. I, I wanted her here and I knew that my wife would fall in love with her. And it, it just makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing the right thing by having her close to us. And you could afford, and, and, and it was financially doable. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and um, um, who does she, she, I'm assuming she speaks Arabic and English. Yeah, exactly. But but the Portuguese, the level of English is extremely high, especially in, you know in Lisbon and the outer parts. Like, man, she's got more friends than we do. Like, it's are there crazy. A lo- are there a lot of people who speak Arabic there also? Since you're so close to North Africa, not really. No? It's no, a okay. funny thing too, you know, because like a lot of my friends, for example, they're like, "Oh, you must kill in front of Arabic crowds." Like when you do comedy, and I'm like, "No, they they're the crowds that like me the least." And I think it's the same with us because we don't fit into the mold. And so I, I think, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of really great Arabic friends, but the friends that are Arabic that tend to be a little bit more conservative, they, they tend to keep us at a distance. So we have more more English-speaking friends than Arabic. You, do you know who uh, Khalil Gibran is? That sounds very – oh, the the author. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, my mom introduced me to that book as a young man. Yeah. And it's weird that it stuck to me. It's it's like I, I I'm um, uh, he wrote the prophet. I mean, he wrote a lot of books, but that was the one that was the most amazing. Got him in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons why someone said that it was so amazing was is because he that was one of the few books that he wrote in English. Mm-hmm. And um, and, and he was and he was a native, um, you know, Arabic speaker. And because he wrote it in English, he just used very, very simple words. Yeah. He was forced to be more eloquent, more poignant. Yeah, and it's and, and it's 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 like one of my uh, favorite books. Me too. I, I'm a big fan of that that style of writing because it's it's the closest to comedy. Like Hemingway was the same thing. Hemingway really believed in brevity, and they used to say brevity is the soul of wit, right? He even had it. He even had this really famous story where they asked Hemingway, uh, "Oh, you can't write a drama with brevity. Brevity is only for comedy." He said, like, "I can write a drama in six words," and they're like, "Do it," and he's all for sale. Baby shoes never worn, and it was like whoa! <laughs> <laughs> uh, concise and exact use of words in writing speech, brevity. Yeah. Um, so, have you? Go ahead. I just love that style of writing because it's uh, you can read long form the rhythm of of black belts in, in storytelling who have a more similar rhythm to comedians. Um, and comedy because comedy a lot of a lot of uh, strikers are into comedy because you know the most successful combination in boxing is the jab jab cross so it's one two you know three the one and the two have the same power the three is powerful and in comedy it's setup premise punchline same same big so that that bump one one two same same big is is the is the secret sauce to comedy and storytelling that's good. Do you want to take that call? We'll listen. Uh, you know what? Let me get the. I think it's the front door. Let me in, let me get the door real quick. Is that cool? Oh, totally, totally. One sec. Good. I'll be right back. Uh, potty break, everyone. Take a potty break. Go pee. Go pee.
I, I just I want to hear how he got started uh, in. I want to hear how he got started in comedy at 40, like what he did, who, who wrote his first jokes, and then I'm going to let him go. We're at a, uh, we're at a hour and 30. Gibran from my mom. Your children are not your children. They come through you, but they are not of you. Rosemary Matosia. No, Khalil Gibran. It's weird. We have a great connection. Um, we have a great connection for him being in Lisbon. Can can Tamer's therapist run for governor of California? Oh, I hear him peeing. Do you hear it? I hear him peeing. He's taking a pee break. He's afraid because the mass exodus of California to other states and DeSantis is going to be his main challenge in future presidential elections. I took that a little out of. Uh, context. Oh yeah, what Gavin Newsom is doing in Florida is crazy. He's only hurting himself. That's that's the contagious sneeze, emotional sneeze that he's spreading. Uh, that uh, Tamer talked about earlier. He was talking about uh, how our politicians are sneezing on us uh, with an emotional cantagen. I I hope you don't mind. I heard, I listened to you pee. <laughs> did you really? Yes, I did. You could. There's no way you could have heard it all the way over there. Uh, we heard it. Uh, listen, um, Tamer, um, b- before you go, I, I want to, I, I keep getting distracted. I want to hear. So, so you're 40, your dad passes. And, and so what, what do you tell me about this whole comedy thing? How, like the first time you got on stage and how oh. you had the balls to do that. I need to be motivated. I, I fancy <laughs> myself as a comedian too, but like, I just sit here and hide in my office and talk shit to people. No, I understand. I, it was, actually, it's a pretty wild story and it's, okay. it's such an LA story. So my junior high school girlfriend uh, uh, was a girl whose brother was very funny and her brother and I were kind of like uh, the comedians at our school. And years and everybody would always argue about who's funnier, John uh, or Tamar. It was John Silver or Tamar Katan. And his sister is Arlene Silver, who is now married to Dick Van Dyke. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's wild. So she was doing the makeup. Is people. Dick Van Dyke alive? Yeah, yeah, he is. He's he's wow. up there. He's doing great. He looks okay. fantastic. Uh, he's in his nineties though. He's you know he's a much older gentleman. But she met him doing his makeup at the Oscars, and then she went on book tour with him doing his makeup for book signings. And man, I, they just have a ton in common, and they they, they click when you see him. It, it absolutely makes sense. But she had bumped into me at a supermarket and goes, "This is like twelve years ago." Right. And go before they got married. And she goes, Hey, um, you won't believe it. John is in North Hollywood tonight performing stand up comedy. And I remember going, My brain exploded. I'm like, What? Because I looked at stand up comics and I, there was no Google map from immigrant to stand up comedy, you know? And so to, to see someone who grew up in such a similar way to me, where we went to the same high school and, and people liked us both in terms of our sense of humor, to see him become a professional comedian was a big thing. So I said, yeah, I'm coming with. So I, I, and your dad had passed at this point just recently. Yeah. My dad had just passed probably six months before. Okay. So, and you hadn't met your current, your current, your current wife or girlfriend. You hadn't met her yet. No, I met her during the pandemic. Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, so I, she said, come see John perform. I went there. Not only was he the best comic, he blew everyone away. And I remember thinking, man, if John is so much better than everyone else, and if I'm just right in the middle, I could try this once and see what I see what comes out. Right. And I'll tell you the style of jokes I thought I was going to write 
completely different than what I wrote because what I wrote wasn't what I thought was funny. What I wrote was kind of uh, what needed to be said, you know? Okay. No, what I don't I, know. What I, what I needed to hear. I, I okay. started, my okay. comedy was much darker than I ever expected it to be. I didn't really listen to dark comedy. I, right. I, I was like a fan of kind of silly comedy, you know, and, and I loved Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor and I respected when they get into the dark stuff. But I think I was kind of more of a Eddie Murphy fan than a Pryor fan because Pryor was almost too dark for me sometimes. Right. And uh, and then I found out that I was kind of a dark comedian when I started. And then and then, it, you know, it fluctuates through the years. It's like whatever affects me in the outside of my life is what ends up entering the inside of my comedy. And, and so uh, and so where did you go your first time? So um, I there was a woman named Judy Carter who wrote a book called The Comedy Bible, which is an amazing resource for comedy because it's just the fundamentals. Right. Like I I understood that being funny was like being tall, but being good at comedy was like learning to play basketball. Comedy was a craft. And I was a tall guy that didn't know how to dribble, didn't know how to shoot, didn't know how to pass. But my potential was big because okay. I had I had comedy height. And so when I took the classes and started learning, oh, this is how you dribble. This is how you pass. And it started coming together. It, it was, I think I, it was one or two jokes in a five minute set that, where the response was so big that I got addicted right away. And, uh, and then I even had professional comedians. Usually when they have a <laughs> showcase for a classroom, they have a professional comedian as a host or as the closer of the show. And so I had this you know, pretty big comic come up to me and he goes, hey man, that joke that you wrote about child abuse, that's a killer joke. And, and he took the time to, you know, talk to me aside and say, you know, a lot of people are doing this for fun or a lot of people are doing this as a bucket list thing. He's, but every once in a while you see somebody and you go, that guy's a comic. He's on my friend. You're a comic. And I was like, Whoa. And, Oh, wow. Wow. That ties up. Wow. Now here's the crazy part. Did you Uh, let that stick when he said that? Big time. It had okay. a massive influence on me. It made okay. me decide to be a comedian. I pursued it at fully years, years later. I'm now headlining this huge show and we're on the show together as peers. And I went up to him and I go, Hey man, I just want to thank you because you know, when I first started, you hosted my showcase and he's like, Oh yeah, I remember that. And I go, you told me something that really stuck with me. He's like, really? What did I tell you? And I told him, he goes, I don't even remember that. <laughs> And I'm like, dude, you completely changed my life. And you don't even remember. <laughs> He's all vaguely. And I'm like, yeah, you did. You really said that. There's a, there's a handful of things that people have said to me, my life and my life that, that I've allowed to stick. And thank God they've all been positive, but it's yeah, amazing when so, it's amazing when something sticks. It is. It, it, it was like, it's very strange. It's almost like you don't realize, um, that, you know, you, you can write a mission statement for a company, but it's almost like the mission statement for you as a human being is written yeah. by other, by other people, by the right. influence of right. other people and other experiences. You, a mission statement is uh, what happens to you as opposed to what you write when you're a human. My, my sister told me one time about 10 years ago, she said, you live a charmed life. It's a great compliment. And it's stuck. And it's got it, it gets me through some really crazy times. Yeah. Me too. Some of some of the most mundane times too. Like, you know, like I'm somewhere and there's not a single parking lot, and I'll hear my sister's voice, you live a charmed life. And then two seconds later I find a parking the best parking spot in the place. <laughs> That's great. 
Yeah, but but also, you know, times when things aren't you know going well, and I just remember, oh shit, I live a charm life. This is just the path of the charm life, and it, and it and it always works out. Yeah, it's like this bridge. Just that she said this one statement to me, and it's I can I can just th- make it a, a bridge for anything. Yeah, it's funny. My grandfather used to say this thing where he said, uh, "Never get married until you've experienced every season of the woman you're dating." And I'm like, "Oh, oh you mean like a year?" And he goes, "No." he goes not a kid is fun huh yeah he goes not the seasons uh of the earth you know people have seasons too he's like winter for people is anger summer for people is happiness uh spring uh for people is uh being forced to change and fall for people is like being forced to lose something he's also when you when you're you could be with someone for five years but if the only emotional range you've had is one feeling you don't really know that person so what were they again fall was losing something yeah like he said like he he almost associated the the seasons like fall would be like losing something you love but still moving forward Uh, spring was having to do something new or learn something new and doing it graciously and and being a beginner graciously um you know summer was being a happy person but being uh but how do you use your happiness? Are you are you generous with other people who are struggling? And then winter is when you're happy, when you're miserable. Um, yeah. You know, are, are you kind to yourself? Do you reach out to people? Those sorts of things. And he goes, you know, you don't really know someone until you've experienced how they react to the different seasons of of being a human being. Right. And and I thought that was great advice. He just gave it to me when I was such a little kid that it was way over my head. Um, was your, is your dad's passing your biggest loss? I, you know, it's, a, I, I hate to say this, but no, I think like, um, it, I, I once was in a, in a, in a book uh, about heartache and on one page is what, what was your biggest heartbreak? And the other page is what was the food, uh, that's most comforting. And, um, my biggest heartbreak was my, the experience I had with my dad when he was alive Oh, um, but oh. we, we got closer on his deathbed that I, I met the real him when he found his mortality. So I, I think my biggest heartbreak was, uh, the path he chose as a dad. Right. Like That's I true. still, I still have my, I still feel really sad when I see like a father and son, um, when a dad puts his arm around a kid, I'm like, Oh, wow, that's so nice. You know? Or if I see a father and son playing golf together or, just hanging out together. If I see like a guy that's obviously father and son at lunch, it hurts a little bit to see it. Um, this is going to uh, sound crazy and manipulative and maybe it is, but <laughs> all of that's going to go away. If you have a kid, I, I remember oh. the thought of my parents dying is um, uh, like, I could feel my tear ducts turn on just now. When I said that I felt my yeah. tear ducts turn on, you know what I mean? Just like right in the inside here. Yeah. But once I had kids, it became a manageable thought for me. Yeah. Which is just such a bizarre, um, I, I don't, and I, I can't probably, I, I haven't ever thought of how to explain it, but I remember telling my mom that. And yeah. I remember asking my mom, like, hey, yeah, when I, it, it must've been, I, cause I remember when my grandmother died and I remember where my mom was sitting on a, on a, on a chair in a living room and she, in the family room. And she told my sister and I, but n- now when I remember it, I used to, I used to remember it as my experience. Now, when I remember it, I think of her experience, I go, Oh man, she was so lucky. She had me and my sister to hold on to. Yeah. And I, I get and it that. Would, you know what I mean? And, and you'll have a kid that can like, 
it's 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 a trip it's a trip yeah it's a i was trip. always now afraid. i'm more worried about when my mom passes how it's going to affect my kids it's going to fuck them up see that real, <laughs> which i'm reason. okay with like deal with that shit you little fuckers but man because my mom and my kids are close as shit that's all that's beautiful yeah i mean for me the real reason if i'm honest the re- it's a shameful reason mm-hmm. i was terrified that if i had a kid i might treat the kid the way my dad treated me for was, sure for sure really scared yeah, yeah, yeah. i think that's super common yeah 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 super even common. like i think it's why i first got a pet i wanted to see if i could handle it you know like I wanted to getting see along it. with your kids and your, and your, and your parents is the true path to enlightenment. I agree. So anytime anyone's like, I'm enlightened. I'll be like, yeah, let me see the Buddha hang out with his mom and dad for an hour. I'd, let me just be a fly on a wall and check that shit out. Yeah. It was my mental health that made me go. I think, I, I think I can do it now. Yeah. I, this is the most common line I read on my podcast. I have it here on a piece of paper. When your parents are alive, you might wish they behave different. When they're dead, you will wish you behave different. Ooh. Pretend That's your parents heavy. are dead. And, hey. and I know this and I'm fucking a wise man and I'm still fucking mean to my mom. Yeah. And it's like, motherfucker, stop. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're a human being, you know, we, yeah, we don't, we don't mean it, but it is, it's, that's, that's right. That's the way to think of it. And that's the way to, to be. Cause it's, it's hard. You know, they, they, um, they annoy you sometimes and aggravate you sometimes. My mom, t- the person at the door was my mom. She couldn't yeah. figure out the intercom. And I'm like, Oh, yeah. you know, what are you 80? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh my God. She gets so mad at you. If you call her that. She's, she's still 75, but she's like, yeah, man. She's like, you know, it's hard not to get frustrated. You know? but- Dude, my mom, it's crazy. My mom will get a TV set. 70 inch tv set and and the next day i'll, I'll come over to see her house I'm like what'd you do yesterday she's like i read i spent the day reading the manual for the tv and the remote and i don't know why but that shit triggers me i'm like what she's like yeah i sat down and read it over six hours i read this one and this one is like, mom no one reads those fucking manuals they're written by a fucking chinese guy who doesn't speak any english and he's just translated into english but then she knows the remote and the tv inside now i'm like mom just push the buttons until that shit works it's like braille <laughs> okay, so you do your first stand up and, yeah. and and you get positive feedback and you get addicted to the crowd and then you just start going and do you just start doing it every day? Are you obsessive compulsive? No, at first I was doing it three three times a week. Okay, and still for a long okay. time I was Crazy. like, oh, this is good enough. I don't need to go up every day. Blah blah blah. And then you know, it's like uh, when you first and you do this for free, right? This is like this yeah. is pa- this is like tra- working out. No one yeah. pays you to fucking lift weights. Okay, nope. No, okay. no money at a very little to no money, right. like f- five bucks, 10 bucks, free drink, yeah. things like right. that. And then I, I, because I went to, uh, I went to university in Europe, I, in Sweden. So I had a lot of friends in Europe and um, they told me about this festival called the Edinburgh Fringe that's starting next month, actually. And I'm going back to it for the first time since I became a comedian, which okay. is kind of a crazy thing, but I did so that's well. Scotland. First- that's Scotland. Exactly. Edinburgh, Scotland. And uh, it's a month-long festival where you basically move to Edinburgh for a whole month. And I did like 136 shows in a month. And, man, I, I, I found out, you know, the, the set I had at the end of the month was a completely different set that I had in the beginning. And I just, uh, you know, I found, my, I found my voice. Because of the evolution. I was ready. I was like a pimple that was really ready to be popped. So when I, I got put somewhere like the Edinburgh Fringe, it was like two big thumbs squeeze on either side of my brain and it just it just came out of me at the fringe and i started writing like crazy and I, I met a bunch of people i met a bunch of industry people 
in a way that you can't really do in the States. I mean, we've got Just for Last Festival, but it's for much more developed comedians with managers and agents control that festival. Whereas the Edinburgh Fringe is more about discovery of there's a lot of new acts that people haven't heard of, haven't seen, but you're there for a month. So when, if you're doing well, people talk about you and people come see you and word of mouth there is a powerful thing. And people saw me and I got management and it started to feel real. So I quit my job. I sold my house. I sold my truck. Oh shit. In LA? In LA. And I, I moved to London. Uh, are you glad you sold it? Yeah, I am actually. It was in hindsight. You don't wish scary. you would have rented it. Getting real estate in California is so hard. You're scared. Oh man. Me. And I had a beautiful place too, but no, it was the right thing for me. I wasn't, I was far from being married and, and far from being ready to be married and um, I spent four years in London and then came back and spent seven in New York. And, uh, and then, but the four years in London is when I switched to full time. And from time to time um, after, when I moved back to the States, I had to take project jobs in advertising, but the last f- uh, four years I've been full time, full time pro, no more project work, just doing comedy. It's, it's amazing. And so 136 shows in 30 days is, um, four point something shows a day. Yeah. And I hadn't had that kind of stage time, you know, cause I hadn't been in New York yet, New York. At one point I was doing almost 10 shows a night, but in, uh, so there's nothing, nothing like the fringe 10 shows a what a night, a night, a day, a day starting in the daytime, you know, including open mics and stuff. I probably get on stage. The first time is around, you know, five. And then I get off stage at like three 30 in the morning. And um, wh- and what are you on then? Are you just like shitloads? Of, are you on shitloads of caffeine? Or oh man, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'd have a, I'd probably have my first coffee at six in the afternoon. But otherwise, the rush of being on stage, even if you have a bad set or a good set, you know, and you're and you're running from show to show and on the subway and you know running around town. So it's a you don't get tired till you get home. I never had a TV set in New York because I never. Uh, New York put the fell and fell asleep. I would go home and pass out. Where do you see this ending? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, definitely. It feels like a treadmill. You're right. It feels like a never ending thing. Um, for me, I, I feel like comedy is almost like uh, digital hieroglyphics. This is, these are my pyramid walls where if I can write something that, that is good enough or reflective enough of enough people in society that it'll get carved into that wall and it'll live longer than me or my dad or anybody else. And even along the way, if, um, if another Middle Eastern kid, he's got a dad who came from a society that feels like therapy's wrong, that maybe it'll inspire a kid to go to therapy because mm. I mean, I am so much happier and, and so much healthier and a better son and a better husband and a better friend. And it, you know, if I could, if I could help a few more people like that, then that's when my focus changed from what am I going to get at the end to what am I doing now? It was doing shows and repeatedly there being these guys in the background who looked very tough guys that look like hell's angels or fighters or whatever. And they always would go up to me and they'd talk about one topic, which was, Hey, my dad used to abuse me too. Oh. And it was so funny. Like these guys wore tattoos and muscles the way girls who were raped would wear turtlenecks or put on weight or do whatever. It was, it was a form of PTSD. It was the masculine version of, of keep away from me. 
It is weird uh, listening to comics and then having them on the podcast because they're 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 making jokes um, like like you make a joke about your cocaine addiction and then it, it, it it's um it's almost it's almost rude to bring it up in a real scenario just because they brought it up as a joke. It's interesting. I mean, because right, because you're making yourself vulnerable. It's kind of like when your wife tells you something and then three days later you throw it in her face in a fight. It's like not cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know I what I mean? Right. Should be like, hey, I'm so sorry. I was in a bad mood yesterday. And then three days later, you're like, and you're always in a bad mood in the morning and you admitted it. And you're like, oh, fuck you. But that's a fucking low blow. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're kind of uh, like, like porn stars that way where the rules amongst each other seem very uh, lawless. But if you're an outsider, that doesn't mean I'm going to get naked in front of you. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, Tamar can put his finger in my ass, but uh, <laughs> but that's it. Like I, not every dude can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, 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 but the way you're saying it is it actually feels good because yeah. you're setting yourself free up there as the example, you're, instead of sneezing a, a cantogen or a virus on your audience, you're sneezing a, Hey, I'm vulnerable. You too can be vulnerable. And then the first attempt they make to be vulnerable is with you. They practice, they get to practice on you. 100%. Uncle Buck, Uncle Buck touched me in a weird way too. Thanks for bringing that up. But there's a danger in that too. Like I, when I, I was in the Edinburgh fringe, when Robin Williams died, and when I was at my dad's funeral, I'm ashamed to say I couldn't cry. I, wow. I just didn't cry. And wow. everyone was staring at me, especially Middle Eastern people, because we are such emotional people. And they were all just looking at me like there's something wrong with this kid. Right. And then and I, I, I just like kind of walked away so no one could see me. And then when I was at the Edinburgh Fringe, a guy came up to me right after I finished my show. And he goes, hey, did you hear the news? Robin Williams killed himself. And I go, uh, hey, I'll, uh, I got to go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom and I cried like a baby. Wow. And it was what I didn't realize is that Robin Williams was like my TV dad. Like he, when I saw Mork for Mork, he was an alien and people laughed at him when he made mistakes and he was so positive and optimistic that I'm like, Hey, I'm like that. Right. I'm an, I'm an alien and, and, and I'm, I'm a good person. They just, they just don't know me. And then he was like that in all of his movies, he had the eyes of an outsider. So I didn't just love Robin Williams or, or Mork for Mork. I started loving Robin Williams. Like, Moscow and the Hudson as an immigrant made me feel seen. And so after he died the very next day, I did a storytelling show where I did a story about Robin Williams. And I said this thing where I said, I, I had to ask myself, why did I cry when Robin Williams died and not when I, my dad died? And I said, because I felt like my dad was a vampire and Robin Williams was the opposite where my dad would take the life and joy out of me. Robin Williams would blow life and joy back in like an emotional version of CPR. And you I said, hold this at a comedy film festival. Then yeah. comedy film festival. Well, it, was a, it was a storytelling show okay. and, it was, and it was called, uh, it was in this place called the caves where they used to torture people. And it was specifically dark shows. Right. And the last line I said is that um, my dad didn't teach me a lot about how to be uh, an adult or how to live life. But Robin Williams did. Um, and the last lesson he taught me in the tragic taking of his own life is if you choose this noble profession, if you choose to blow life and joy into people, you have to always remember to stop before you run out of breath. Mm. And I think there's something that's very real about comedy that if you do choose to be vulnerable, if you do choose to kind of like expose yourself and talk to people, you also have to remember to take care of yourself and, and you have to be able to take a break from time to time because different styles of comedy require different levels of uh, emotional output. 
And you do have to remember to take a break, uh, uh, you know, lest you harm yourself. You have to take care of you, just like on an airplane. You have to put the oxygen mask on you before you can put it on anybody else. What? What? Speaking of taking care of, what do you do to train to stay in shape? Uh, I'm a huge fan of boxing, so I, I don't spar anymore. My wife made me agree because I I, uh, I kept getting hurt a little bit. Um, so now I just I I train with the heavy bag uh, during the day, and I, I do weights. Uh, and now I'm a bigger fan of cardio than I've ever been because. I used to hate cardio, but the, especially running. But during the pandemic, I didn't really have a choice. So it, it made me fall in love with running. So now I really like running, not just for the cardio, but for meditatively. I really like it too. I get a lot of ideas when I run. Do you, I'm going to show you. Uh, this is. Um, I do this thing. Uh, like So So yesterday, um, I, I probably watched at least, I don't know, at least an hour of, of your content. Um, uh, while riding this, I ride this a lot. I have this in front of a TV set. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, so I ride this. So, so I put headphones on, I'll ride that for 10 minutes, break a sweat and then I'll, and then I'll stretch a little. And then while I continue to watch content, you know, and then I have my phone there, I'm taking notes, but then, you know, then I'll do like intervals and then push ups and pull ups, or I got a, um, I got a Bob, I'll punch the Bob. Uh, that's great. But I highly recommend one of these. Especially because because running can be get kind of hard on your body. Yeah, that's th- a good point. Th- this thing is so awesome. Yeah, I use it's, every boxing gym has a very similar bike, like the fan bikes. Right, great. Right. Is it different than a no, no, no? Or? It's just one of those. It's just it's, oh, it's right basically on. just you know the the Schwinn Airdyne, the old school Schwinn Airdyne. Yeah, I love those bikes. They're great. I mean, I used to always hop on those things, especially for for boxing. If you can't breathe, you can't fight. You know, and right. so cardio was really important when I started focusing on boxing. I love those bikes. They're great. Yeah, awesome. Okay, yeah, I figured. And your dad was a boxer. Yeah. Do you this hit mitts? <laughs> yeah, I will sometimes. But um, uh, Yeah, for sure. It's fun. It's fun to practice combos and stuff like that. He's Was he golden gloves? Is that what that is? Uh, it was the Egyptian version. He was wow. almost, in the, almost in the Olympics. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Have you done any? Have you been on any other podcasts? Yeah, I, I used to do a ton uh, when I was in the states. In Europe, I'm kind of like the podcast scene is less mature. It's it's there. There's great podcasts, but uh, I'm also kind of new again as a comedian here. So I've been. I'm really happy this past year. I've like kind of uh, showed up on the radar. So I'm starting to do more and more podcasts. And I imagine during the fringe where I'll be, you know, have access to a lot a lot more podcasters I'll be able to do more there. But yeah, I used to do, I used to do tons and I used to have my own obviously. Right. You're not doing that anymore? I'm not, but I'm looking I'm going to do one that's a little bit more mobile um when I'm on the road um because I I'm going to and I'm definitely going to do episodes with my mom since we're both back in the same country, but I, I couldn't do it for a while, but I, it's a, a new podcast is definitely coming before the end of the year. Awesome. Well, the reason why I ask is because when I was looking on, on YouTube, I could not find podcasts with you unless I went over to Spotify oh. or iTunes. So, oh, wow. Really? Excuse, I mean, I could find yours. They tried yeah. to bury us. I just couldn't find you on with other people. But maybe it's because you've done so, so – and you're publishing a lot on YouTube now on your YouTube channel. So maybe yeah. it's because you've done so much and it's kind of just got pushed way down. Yeah, it might be. That might be the case because I've definitely done a, a ton. Thank you so much, man. Man, thank you. It's been a great conversation. It was nice to finally meet you. I always heard great things. 
Yeah, a- absolute pleasure. I thank you uh, for letting me uh, let coming and swimming in the in the deep end with me. That's, 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 <laughs> thank it's, you. It's, uh, it's always an honor to do that with another human being. I agree. It was great to meet you, man. It's a great. I, I feel like if we met in real life, I'd give you a hug. Oh, of course, I'd squeeze you. <laughs> Wouldn't let you go. An uncomfortable ten second one. <laughs> uh, Tamer, uh, we have each other's phone number. Um, uh, text me anything appropriate. Twenty four hours a day. I don't sleep by my phone. It's all. You're always welcome. Attaboy. That's great, man. And when I'm uh, back visiting LA, let's let's grab some food. I would love to do that. All right, that's a deal. It's done. All right. Cheers, man. Cheers, man, thanks a lot. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Have a good day. Tamer. Catan? Tamer Catan. Wow. I, I'm gonna, I, I mean, him and Justin Nunley now. They, they hold the uh, two best comedians. What a show. What a show. I wonder if I was supposed to do something. I went, I went a half hour past my time. Usually at 8.30 a.m. I'm supposed to go leave this room and go uh, start my day with my kids. Oh, what is this? Looks like tomorrow's podcast is being rescheduled. Idris, Idris. Let me see this. What's going on here? Uh, I apologize. We're going to have to reschedule our show with you. Oh, we're oh we're rescheduling with him. Oh, all right, all right. I see it, Souza. I see it. I see it. Oh, what a uh. Yesterday's pot was yesterday the day we did the podcast with who did I do yesterday? Was yesterday the, the one we did? Um, yeah, I am gonna spoon him. I really liked him. That's I, I really liked him. He's my first guest that has pronouns in his signature. It's good for me. It's good for me to get out of my comfort zone, out of my echo chamber. We de- we have such different definitions of red pilled and blue pilled. The way he sees the Matrix, that movie, that was fascinating to me how he sees it. I was like, wow, perspective. If you want to hear more from him, check out his uh, They Tried to Bury Us podcast and watch that episode with his mom. Man, there's some stuff in there. Thank you, Bruce. There is some. Oh, Tony Blower. Thank you. I did Tony Blower yesterday. The day before I did uh, Hopper and um, Danielle Brandon. That was when we when like I was like a chicken and I was scratching and we and we accidentally uncovered. I don't know if accidentally, but we uncovered that. She's uh sounds like she's switching teams that that her and Kotler, you know, I kind of I've been thinking about that a lot. Her and Kotler. I and, and I don't know. I don't know what happened. There, I mean, there's obviously some things that are completely non-negotiable, right? In a relationship, someone does something that's, that's just so like, hey, can't you can't we can't we can't we can't we're not going to make it past this. But I. But also there's 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 people who've done things I was gonna say to me, but that's the wrong way to talk about. It. There's people who've done things that you 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 need to keep the relationship going because it's what everyone else does is end the relationship. And maybe you need to change the distance between you and that person. But ending the relationship it, it, I feel like uh, is not um, here's why I'm going to give give me a second. Give me a second. Here's why. And and this is a huge generalization, but 
bear with me here. If you have a relationship with someone, let's just say for the sake of this, uh, let's say you're a boy and you have a relationship with a girl and something happens and you break up with her. There's a very good chance that the next relationship you get in will pick up where that one left off. It may, you may go through a, uh, um, a honeymoon period for like a year, six months, five years, who knows. But then it's th- those problems are going to reoccur. And so there's there's things you have to work through with people. You can't just be jumping from person to person to person to person. And I and I and I'm and I'm the I'm the first to admit that um you know it, it just pains me. You know I I like uh, Justin Kotler and I like Danielle Brandon and I want goodness for them. And so so it's just uncomfortable for me that they um that they would have a struggle. But 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 some sometimes that struggle needs to evolve. I mean, God knows, uh, me and my wife had to fight ten thousand times about the same subjects, thousands of times before we got peace. And we didn't get peace by changing the circumstances. We got peace by working on ourselves. Maybe Danielle Brandon leaves no room for people to fail her, uh, no chance to work through anything. Who knows? Yeah, or 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 maybe Justin Kotler. I mean, I mean, I mean, who 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 knows? But but also, I think uh, we talked about it with her on the podcast. I mean, she's had a, uh, she's had it. She she's had it. I mean, her her life has been. She 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 fights in life. Like that's what she does. So, and I've known other people who fight in life, and like they need to fight. And so sometimes, like I'm good. I'm I'm good like that as a friend. I know how to fight. We can. I can fight with someone and still be their friend. I mean, we can really fight, like really fight. And I'll let you play dirtier than me, so that I can hold it against you later. If you know what I mean. Uh, the Jason Hopper Daniel Brandon podcast was one of your best. Uh, keep stirring it up, my man, and bringing Hiller was genius. Bringing in Hiller, I know. It's so funny. People will say stuff to me like, um. I'll see comments like, I can't believe he was ever afraid of Hiller or, or hesitant or it's like saying someone who's moonwalking is running away and not recognizing that they're dancing. Like, did you not see the courtship? Did you really think, I I don't want to say I lie, but I have a shtick. I have a courtship. I have a, I have a way that I do things. It's not a lie. It's just me dancing. When I'm moonwalking, I'm not lying to you that I'm not walking backwards or not running. It, but but it's also a dance, and I was dancing. I was dancing with Hiller. I was dancing, and I think he felt that, and he too liked to dance, and so we danced. But but it, but it's a it's a bit of a facade, not 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 a lie. A lie is too strong. A lie is too strong. She said it was something that had happened before in other relationships, but this time she is taking the high road. I don't know if she, I don't know. I don't remember it like that, Mr. Yozel. I don't know if I remember. I remember her saying that she was going to take the high road this time. And that in the past, when she has hiccups in relationships, she would throw a temper tantrum. I kind of, I haven't called Justin. Or followed up with her. I thought about following up with her. Do you know what someone fucking texted me yesterday? So I've been telling you about this guy that I'm friends with, who I, who I really want to have on the show. Who he has a, a, a OnlyFans page, right? 
And uh, in that OnlyFans page, he basically he has a menu and you can pay for shit. So like you can pay for a certain amount of money. You can pay to watch him do the splits naked. Right. And it's, and he says it's all dudes or like someone will be like, hey, take a picture of my butthole. And he does it and sends it to them. And then and, and it's a menu of shit you can buy from him. So this guy texted me yesterday after the Daniel Brandon show. And he said, hey, Daniel Brandon could make a lot of money on OnlyFans. And I said, how much? And he says, well, she, if she got 10,000 subscribers at $12 a month, that would be $120,000 a month. I was like, holy shit. And I go, ah, she probably doesn't want to do any, any crazy shit. He goes, dude, he's like, you can go. He said, there was a girl on there who made a million dollars in a week and didn't show any nudity. So I was just trying to think like, what would that, what would that look like? And, and, and these two other girls that I'm friends with who are on OnlyFans, they told me that they don't show any nudity either. So what do you do? Like you have this menu, like Daniel Brandon will have like a menu, like I'll eat an apple in front of you for thousand dollars, or you can watch me put my toast bakers, toast pacers on for 50 bucks. Like what, what do you, what, what's the, what's the, what's, what's the, the no nudity Daniel Brandon only fans uh, page look like? That's $1.2 million a year to supplement her CrossFit Games earnings prize money. After taxes, that's uh, $30,000. No, she probably, I think if you make $1.2 million, you could probably keep $700,000. Oh. <sighs> Daniel Brandon would make a killing from the creeps who are hoping there would be revealing content. Yeah. But I mean, I think you can even be honest and be like, Hey, I'm never going to reveal shit. Uh, the no plan B. Okay. So check this out. So I wore my no plan B shirt yesterday. I have two of them. They're dope. Get your no plan B shirt today from vindicate. And I was wearing my no plan B shirt and I was at the Monterey Bay aquarium, which ended up kind of being like Disneyland. It was so sad. So many unhealthy people out there, but I was there and, um, one of the people I was there with was like, Hey, do you know the irony behind your, your statement? No plan B. And I was like, no. And then I remembered learning about that on this show, I guess plan B, I think you guys have told me, maybe it was Bruce Wayne told me, but that plan B is a kind of birth control and it's a little tiny pill with a shitload of packaging around it. And so I guess when I'm walking around with a no plan B shirt, it's telling the world that like, I don't believe in birth control. I don't know what it's telling the world. That's not my intention. Take care of your health. Be good to your family. And stay passionate about the project that gives you purpose in life. That's the plan. And there's no other plan. There's no plan B. Love you guys. Uh, see you tonight. Tonight's show is going to be great. Super excited about it. JR and Brian Friend will be on again. Um, we will be talking about the 2022 CrossFit games and the 10 events that all the athletes have already participated in and how they would rank. Oh, Christine, did you see the post I made? I didn't know your Instagram, so I couldn't tag you. Oh, it's a pill for not getting pregnant. You take it before you fuck or after. Oh, morning after pill. Easy, easy, Christine. I'm not giving away any of my easy, easy, easy. All right, guys. Love you guys. Uh, have a uh, great day, and I will see you guys tonight. Bye-bye.